What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. What do you begin to learn that you think is like revolutionary knowledge? Well, I used to think that dementia was an old person's disease, right? I, I like many people, didn't, didn't care about it. Alzheimer's disease was something that I thought was decades into the future, something only old people get, a natural part of aging. Mm. Um, you know, age-related senility was something that was considered a par for the course of just getting older. Uh, but what I learned is that Alzheimer's disease begins in the brain 30 to 40 years, if not longer, before the first symptom. Whoa. Yeah. There are biomarkers evident on brain scans now with, you know, the hyper-advanced scanning technology that we now have uh, access to that have shown signs related to Alzheimer's disease evident in the brains of 20-year-olds. So, Whoa. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that might be a lifelong cascade by the time you... Uh, is this something I could get checked for right now? Well, there are genetic risk factors for developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, so the most well-defined of them is the APOE4 allele, which is a, a variant of the APOE uh, gene that you inherit one copy from your mom, one co- copy from your dad. But your thesis, if I have it right, is yeah. basically, okay, you may have the allele, the gene, but that doesn't mean that it's inevitable. 100%. What could I do to my brain to see if I have any of the precursors of Alzheimer's? Well, one of the top things that you can do is make sure that you are insulin sensitive because peripheral insulin resistance, which is insulin resistance is the hallmark of type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes. It can... Uh, precede actually the um, the appearance of chronically elevated blood sugar, and so it's been shown that that is actually very uh, closely related to um, your brain's ability to create energy. So this is actually one of the defining features of Alzheimer's disease, and it might be the one of the earliest uh, things to go awry in the brain, metabolic dysfunction in the brain, and it seems to be very closely tied to the body's metabolism. So, so I would go to the doctor and have them run what test? Your fasting blood sugar and your fasting glucose, very important. And with those two biomarkers that any physician can check, they can determine your level of uh, insulin sensitivity. 
Okay. One thing you've talked a lot about in the book and in your talks, and I love this, is so I hear Alzheimer's, I think I know all about this, amyloid plaques, man, yeah. that's the problem. Um, I just recently had my cholesterol taken. I like to think I am healthy. And my doctor literally wanted to put me on a statin. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, I know enough to be dangerous when it comes to cholesterol. Walk us through the 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 relationship that you've talked about that exists between potentially what amyloid plaques are and potentially what cholesterol really is. I find yeah. this really interesting. So Alzheimer's disease was first named in 1906 by a German physician named Alois Alzheimer, but 90% of what we know about the disease has been discovered only in the past 15 years. The only way up until very recently that it could be diagnosed with black and white certainty was on death, they would open up the brain of a cadaver and they would examine the brain. They would notice dramatic brain shrinkage and they would notice hallmark plaques and tangles in the brains of these patients. The plaques were uh, an aggregation of misfolded proteins. The protein is called amyloid beta. And so the amyloid hypothesis that these plaques build up in the brain of a person with Alzheimer's disease has been the guiding um, path. What it now turns out, thanks to you know, advanced scanning technology, that amyloid might actually be there at the scene of the crime, but in fact, at least initially, an innocent bystander. Um, because you know, we now have scanning technology that allows us to see things that are happening in the brain well before the presentation of symptoms um, that might actually be um, more initial factors in the cascade that will ultimately create Alzheimer's disease. It's led researchers and scientists to take a step back and ask what is causing our brains to become landfills for this amyloid plaque. And so as I mentioned earlier, one of the burgeoning theories that now seems to be displacing, at least from my perspective, this amyloid hypothesis, because you know drug trials that have sought to cure the disease have a 99%, 99.6% fail rate. Oof. Yeah. So the question is, what starts first? You know, is there, is there something that we can measure in the body or brain that begins before this buildup of amyloid plaque that we can intervene and say, um, you know, by taking these steps, you might prevent this disease from happening? Well, one of the, if not the earliest measurable thing to happen in the brain is a reduced ability by the brain to create ATP out of glucose. So the brain has a few uh, fuel substrates that it can use to create ATP, which is the energetic currency of the cell. And energy for the brain is really important. In fact, 25% of your metabolic rate is used to satiate the energy requirements of the brain. So 20, you know, every one out of every four breaths that you take, a fourth of all the calories you eat is going for your is being used by your brain to create energy. So any sort of outage in the brain in terms of its, its ability to create energy is going to create problems. Just as, a, as an anecdote, you know, a newborn uh, human, their brains require 90% of their base metabolic rate. Whoa! Yeah. So that, uh, a newborn human baby, 90% of its oxygen, all the calories that it's, that it's using is going to help its brain develop. Because actually, human babies are born half-baked. We continue our develop actually in the real world. This is one of the reasons why humans are so smart and we've been able to build what we've been able to build because we complete our cognitive development in the presence of, of you know, other, other people. It's called the fourth trimester, right? 
That's one of the reasons why a baby, a newborn human baby, is so fat. Because the fat that a newborn baby comes packaged with is actually an energy reservoir for the developing brain. I've heard you call it a Mophie it's a for your brain. I love that. It's a Mophie for the brain. It's been shown that the brain's ability to use glucose is diminished by about 50% in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Mm. So there's this, this really stark metabolic uh, problem that's occurring in the brain. And thanks to functional um, MRI scans and PET scans, we've been able to see that um, there's a, a deficit, an energetic deficit in the brain that's evident from very early in life. Um, and it's related to the, this uh, gene that seems to put people at higher risk for the, the disease in the Western sort of uh, environment, food environment. So you see that deficit in people that have that allele, yeah. not necessarily yes. across the board. There's about a 10% uh, reduction in the brain's ability to generate ATP out of glucose from very early on. And you've interviewed the woman that coined the phrase um, diabetes type 3, which yeah. is what Alzheimer's is often referred to as. I, I want to walk through this process because oftentimes people talk about it at a really high level, yeah. and, and I want to drill down. So um, why is it called, we'll start with, why is it called diabetes type 3? Well, if you have type 2 diabetes, which 50% of the U.S. population is now either diabetic or pre-diabetic, your cells have an inability to respond to insulin, which is the hormone that allows glucose entry into those cells, where the cells to be might, used as fuel to be used as fuel. Yeah. So basically, you have, despite an abundance of fuel in circulation, because blood sugar, you know, is chronically high in a person with type two diabetes, your cells essentially starve because they have an inability to respond to insulin, and therefore glucose has a much more difficult time getting into the cell, where it can be used to create ATP, which again is the energetic currency of cells. So in the brain, a researcher out of Brown University, who I've interviewed, Suzanne Delamonte, uh, has coined the term type 3 diabetes to describe Alzheimer's disease because there's a similar inability of the brain to create energy, even though, and oftentimes this is the case, there is an abundance of fuel in the body. And, you know, in people that are overweight, you know, people that are carrying fat around their midsections, your average pound of fat has about 3,000 backup calories that the brain will happily use for fuel, but the brain is unable to because most people on the Western, you know, diet plan are eating about 300 grams of carbohydrates per day. Carbohydrates cause insulin to become chronically elevated, and insulin acts like a one-way valve on your fat cells. So fat is, we, you know, we're really good at storing fat, but in an overweight person in the modern food environment, that the ability of fat to be burned is basically blocked. Sugar is one of those things that, like oxygen, you know, oxygen oxidizes things. It ages you. You slice an apple, leave it, you know, there on the counter, you'll notice it start to turn brown. The same way that we need oxygen, it also is what's killing us. And the same thing goes for sugar. We need a certain amount of sugar. I mean, the brain still has about a 40% uh, energy requirement for glucose. Um, but sugar is also very damaging. It's glycotoxic, you know? I mean, it, da it damages your proteins. This is one of the reasons why type 2 diabetes is so damaging. Um, because at that point, your blood sugar has become chronically elevated, glycating all of the proteins that make you you. I mean, we tend to think about protein as a nutrient in terms of its ability to help us grow bigger muscles, but we are made of protein. Actually, the protein that, that aggregates and forms the plaques that characterize Alzheimer's disease, that's another protein that can become glycated. And when this happens, when it when it gets bound to sugar, 
in the molecular sense, it becomes less easily able to be flushed away, um, which is something that our brains actually do when we sleep. Our brains actually clean themselves of these, of these proteins that can aggregate over the course of the day. So um, one of our best performing episodes of Health Theory ever was on sleep, hmm. which I was totally surprised by. I did not think people really cared that much about sleep, nor did I honestly know how detailed and important sleep is. Why is it that you think sleep is important? It's so important. I mean, there's a newly discovered system in our brains called the glymphatic system, which when we're sleeping actually swooshes cerebrospinal fluid all throughout, essentially cleansing it of these proteins that aggregate over the course of the day. Um, they've shown that on one night of bad sleep, there's an increased level of amyloid um, measurable in, in CSF, cerebrospinal fluid. Um, but then also, you know, I think dietary change for most people is one of the most difficult things to do. And it's particularly difficult when we have our hormones working against us. So sleep, I think, is so profoundly important because it acts like a master regulator of our hormones. Um, it helps to, you know, make sure that uh, we don't need to use our willpower very often because, you know, willpower is sort of like this muscle that we need to use in order to fight off cravings and things like that. But with good sleep, our cravings diminish. I mean, they've shown that even on one night of poor sleep, you consume an, an excess of calories the following day, anywhere between three and 500 calories. I've actually noticed, it's a little off topic, but I once, one of the um, major breakups I had in my life, I, uh, I noticed that I would feel way more sensitive to it um, when I was underslept. You know, you become less able to contextualize emotions when, when you're underslept. On just one night of bad sleep, a metabolically healthy person will be essentially pre-diabetic the next day, temporarily. Well, yeah, you become more insulin resistant. Um, so, yeah, sleep. Sleep, I think, is one of those things that today we romanticize being busy, um, but it's sort of like the one thing that lifts all the boats in your harbor, you know. And yet we tend to undervalue it. Um, you talked on your Instagram uh, <laughs> about you want to live for a really long time or extend your life, forget exactly how you worded it, which got my attention. And then you said prioritize de-stressing. Yeah. Is that tied to sleep? Like what, what do you mean by that? Well, stress is an indiscriminate killer. And today, you know, so many of us um, are losing sleep due to stress. Um, it's one of the reasons why one in six adults now is on some kind of psychiatric drug. One in six? Yeah, yeah. Is on or Whoa. has used. Um, Whoa. We're definitely self-medicating. And, uh, and it's not good. I mean, chronic stress is a major, major problem. Wow. Yeah. So in, give me some tactics. How, do, how does one de-stress? You know, I think meditation is really important. Um, you know, I'm one of those people that uh, I was trained to meditate. Um, I think this is really important. I think, you know, being, being taught how to meditate is as important as being taught how to do yoga. You know, we don't come out of the womb knowing how to do a downward dog and to hit, you know, any of the number of yoga poses that we're taught to do with a good yoga teacher. Um, having a good meditation teacher is very, um, I think, is critical to knowing how to de-stress. I also think, um, you know, knowing, knowing what chronic stress is and knowing what it isn't uh, is really important, you know. So in my book, I, I 
differentiate between chronic stress and acute stress, which acute stress is very beneficial. It's, you know, what we do in the gym. We stress our bodies. Chronic psychological stress is really toxic. It's working under a boss that you hate. It's being stuck in a relationship that's gone sour. By de-stressing and by, um, you know, doing physical exercise and things like that, you actually increase your resilience to stress. Cortisol sort of gets a bad rap because it's related to stress, but it's actually a really important hormone. It's the body's chief waking hormone. So for about 45 minutes after you wake up, cortisol is the highest that it's really meant to be throughout the day. It's part of the body's natural circadian uh, hormonal ebb and flow. And in that, in that window, for about 45 minutes after you wake up, that's a great fat-burning window. You've got that cortisol spike, which is really working to liberate stored fats, stored sugars, um, for use by your body as fuel. It's meant as a way of, you know, allowing fuels to become accessible so that you can use them and, and carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Within that window, it's particularly dangerous to consume breakfast in its most standard American form, which is usually rapidly digesting carbohydrates from oatmeal, granola bars, things like that, because that causes a spike in insulin. But going back to stress, this is why consuming carbs in the context of chronic stress is so bad. Because you've got cortisol chronically elevated due to chronic stress. And then we're continuing to keep our insulin elevated with the carbohydrates that we're consuming. So this not only helps redistribute our weight from muscle to fat, but also our, our, our visceral fat, mm. which is the most inflammatory kind of fat that wraps around our internal organs, actually has about four times the cortisol receptors Whoa. on it. So this is actually why when you look at people that are chronically stressed out, they, their bodies take on a very uh, particular shape. It's totally different from run-of-the-mill obesity, where people are just eating lots and lots of calories and not necessarily chronically stressed out. Somebody who's chronically stressed and eating lots of carbs in particular, they usually have skinny arms and skinny legs, but a bulging midsection mm. because their visceral fat is just soaking up all the excess carbs wow. that they're eating because of the presence of chronically elevated cortisol. That's so weird. It's super fascinating. I had fascinating. no idea. I always thought that was just like, oh, some people, that's how they put on fat. I like to think of stress as, eh, it's sort of invisible and it doesn't really have any lingering effects. But when you see that it can play out into an actual body type, yeah. that's when it gets really crazy. Yeah. Now, one type of stress you've talked about that is really useful, I want to go a little bit deeper, thermal stress. I've yeah. never heard of that before. What is it exactly and how do we leverage it? So, you know, we've, we, our bodies were, you know, we're the ultimate performance machines, right? We all evolved chasing our food um, and, and really being honed to perform physical bouts of uh, exercise. But thermal exercise is another form of exercise that we also had for the vast majority of our evolution. And I think chronic climate control, you know, something that we've developed, you know, with air conditioning and heat and things like that really has been to the detriment in many ways of our, of our health. Um, so we can look at research that was performed recently out of Finland uh, that I think is very compelling. They found that people who used saunas four to seven times per week had a dramatic risk reduction for Alzheimer's disease, about 65% risk reduction for people that use sauna four to seven times per week. Really, I mean, there's no drug on the market that'll cut yeah. your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease by 65%. Finland is the sauna capital of the world. So in Finland, there's on average one sauna per household in Finland. It's like taking a shower in Finland. It's so embedded into the culture. In fact, there's a great documentary called Steam of Life, which documents all of the weird ways in which uh, people in Finland will 
you know, create like phone booths, abandoned phone booths into saunas, things like that. It's very strange. Yeah. So they found that in this population that saunas really seem to play a protective role in terms of, of vascular function. Um, it also was uh, related to a, a, a dramatic risk reduction for high blood pressure. Um, but then also for, for dementia, it seems to really uh, help promote what's called vascular compliance and reduce high blood pressure. So what coincides with Alzheimer's disease is also vascular dysfunction. Um, of all of the microcapillaries that provide you know, blood, fuel, nutrients to the brain. And so anything that's good for the heart is going to be good for the brain. And saunas seem to really be good for the heart as well. What about like cold showers and stuff? Yeah, those are all great. Um, you know, they are really good in terms of really dialing mental acuity. I mean, you can feel it instantly. You take a cold shower. There was a really great study performed where people with type 2 diabetes... Um, were told to uh, basically turn the air conditioning down on low to about, I believe it was 60 or 66 degrees Fahrenheit um, for six hours a day. So, I mean, that's not freezing. It's cold, but it's not freezing. And there was about a 25% increase in their insulin sensitivity. Not changing their diet at all or doing any additional physical exercise, just exposing themselves to colder temperatures. They showed a dramatic increase in their metabolic health. Again, insulin resistance is the hallmark of type 2 diabetes. I'm so surprised by that. Yeah. Cold stress, heat stress, all very beneficial. So I try to compel people to get out of their comfort zones in in the thermal sense. You know, it's Mm -hmm. really good for creativity getting out of your comfort zone, um, but it seems to be the case as well in terms of temperature. That is really interesting, and I hate you for it (laughs) because I hate being cold so much I I can't begin to tell you. Yeah, so do I, actually. But, um, But, you know, I think it's one of those things that... Um, seems to be really beneficial. You know, I, uh, I go to my mom's house occasionally and the heat is always blasting. It's like always, uh, like super warm in that apartment, not like sauna level temperature, but just always, you know, my mom doesn't like to be cold. She doesn't like to be hot. She likes to live only within that narrow range of her comfort. Glad you brought your mom back up. I wanted to talk a little bit more about something you said that I thought was so beautiful so I grew up in a morbidly obese family and I really struggle with, wow. I know what they need to do, but that's very stressful for them emotionally. And I don't want to stress that relationship out. And you said something similar about your mom. And you said, I don't ever want her food choice to damage the relationship that I have with her. Yeah. How do you deal with that? What advice do you have for caregivers, loved ones of somebody that's going through dementia? It sounds cliche to say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So I think at a certain point, um, you've, you, sh- you should teach. You know, I think that's one of our missions here on Earth as empathetic and compassionate beings is to lead, you know, lead your neighbor, lead your loved one to a greater vision of life. You know, that's what you're doing with the show. I think you can't do it with force. You can't do it with aggression. You've got to you've got to be, I think, a bit more gentle. And when it comes to loved ones, and especially people that are suffering with chronic diseases and that, you know, you don't know what they're going through psychologically, I think it's really important to um, to provide the information, but then to, to step back and detach at a certain point. At a certain point with my mom, I would get very emotionally wound up in what my mom was eating. And I would become upset if I went to her house and I saw that she had an open bag of chips or, Mm. you know, uh, cookies or whatever, you know, whatever. 
And um, I didn't want that to interfere with the time that I was spending with my mom. You know, I would never want to do that. And I, I value so much the time that I spend with my mom. And um, I know that I'm really neurotic when it comes to nutrition and health, but I don't, you know, I don't judge other people. In your book, you do a great job of not spending a lot of time demonizing anything, but instead really being quite prescriptive about, okay, if you want to upgrade yourself, which is like the big tag in your website, which I absolutely love. So if somebody wants to upgrade themselves, knowing that every word that's about to come out of your mouth comes with compassion and knowing that there's a lot of individual variability and yes. you get all of that. But like in a nutshell, for somebody that wants to upgrade themselves, what should they eat and not eat? Yeah. So, you know, opt for foods that are nutrient dense. Um, one of the easiest things that I recommend that people can do every single day is to consume what I call a large fatty salad. Um, I think it's one of the best ways to really check off so many of your nutritional boxes to get an abundance of uh, dietary fiber that the microbes that live in your large intestine love to consume. Um, and when I say fatty, I don't mean, you know, throwing on tortilla strips and cheese and ranch dressing. I mean, <laughs> you know, taking a bowl of dark leafy greens, kale, spinach, which are, you know, top sources of magnesium, which 50% of people do not consume adequate amounts of, folate, um, arugula. Arugula is a top source of nitrates, dietary nitrate, really important in terms of increasing blood flow to the brain. One single high nitrate meal might actually imp improve cognitive function. It's that powerful. Oh. Um, Dousing those dark leafy greens with extra virgin olive oil, which research has shown out of Barcelona, Spain, the PREDIMED study, you can consume about a liter a week to better cognitive function, cognitive health, cardiovascular health, and it might even help you lose weight because it's so anti-inflammatory. Actually, there's a compound in extra virgin olive oil that is as anti-inflammatory as low-dose Advil, but without any of the potential for negative side effects. And importantly you need to have fat in that salad because fat allows many of the most important nutrients in the salad to become bioavailable. So I talk a lot about in this book, which I think is bringing, you know, especially, um, you know, there's a lot, I, th I think actually that there's a lot uh, of new information that I bring to the conversation, but I talk particularly about um, carotenoids and how research has shown out of University of Georgia that by eating uh, lutein and zeaxanthin by by supplementing with these carotenoids, you can actually boost visual processing speed by 20%, even if you're young and healthy. So, I mean, these are young and healthy people that are already considered to be at the peak of their cognitive prowess. Visual processing speed is so important. I mean, think about it in terms of responding to visual stimuli, you know, driving, athletic performance, sports performance, things like Video that. Video games. Video games. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, dark leafy greens are abundant in these two carotenoids, and they're only absorbed through the digestive tract when in the presence of fat. You don't absorb any of them unless you're consuming them with fat. So like that fat-free dressing, throw that in the trash. Extra virgin olive oil, you know, is super key. Eating a large fatty salad, I think is just really key. People tend to think about salads in terms of like weight loss. I want to lose weight, I'm going to eat more salad. But really in terms of the brain, it's powerful. You also get the benefit of, I mentioned dietary fiber. We now know that you have microbes that live in your large intestine that when you consume uh, fermentable, soluble prebiotic fiber, which is found in abundance in that, in that bowl of greens, the microbes churn out a compound called butyrate, which is profoundly anti-inflammatory. It is really you know, beneficial in terms of the gut ecosystem. It's been shown to boost levels of uh, growth factors in the brain. 
which promote neuroplasticity, which is your brain's ability to change over time. Very important stuff. Um, in terms of lifestyle, you know, I advise, as I mentioned, not eating for an hour or two after you wake up. People today are really obsessed with intermittent fasting, which I think is, you know, really great. At the very least, it, it I think, has awakened people to the necessity to bring back balance in terms of being fed and being fasted. But I don't get hung up over the hours. I think it's just really important to honor the body's natural circadian inclinations. You really want to, like, after that one, two, or three-hour window, eat your food and then stop eating for two to three hours before bed. Again, you know, we talked about the glymphatic system. It's a newly discovered system. But, you know, it's been theorized that eating soon before bed might interfere with that, um, that, that cleanup process. And then, you know, I try to eat a, uh, a low-carb diet. I try to avoid um, dense sources of carbohydrate with the exception of occasionally eating them in the post-workout window. Um, if you're going to eat carbs throughout the day, you really want to concentrate them into one meal. Um, it seems that when you consume your carbs concentrated into one meal, uh, less insulin is required to clear those carbs from circulation, that glucose from circulation, as opposed to if you were to spread them out over the course of the day, which makes that, that old advice to eat six small meals throughout the day particularly bad because mm -hmm. insulin seems to be able to compound on itself. So rather than eating, you know, uh, 30 grams of carbs at lunch, 30 grams of carbs at dinner, 30 grams of carbs at um, breakfast, concentrate them into one meal and there's less of an you know, insulin AUC. So less, less insulin being stimulated to clear that glucose, which is important because as we talked about earlier, glucose is very damaging when mm. it's uh, in the blood. It glycates those proteins. That is really interesting. Everything you've said is really interesting. I mean, yeah, I'm a, I, I'm a major nerd for this kind of stuff. Whether or not you're concerned about your risk for disease in the long term, you know, the, all these things actually help you feel great in the here and now. You know, we talked about visual processing speed, just in terms of your overall energy levels, um, feeling less beholden to your hormones and to your, you know, food cravings, I think is really important. Um, and these are all ways of, of really kind of, I think, helping stack the odds in our favor, you know. Um, because when it comes to nutrition, what I've found is that the mainstream medical system has very little to offer and nutrition really is so important when it comes to preventing, you know, all of the diseases that I think we're seeing skyrocket today. I mean, 60, according to the world health organization, chronic diseases now account for 60% of deaths worldwide. You know, we've already talked about nutrition, so, uh, I'm going to throw you a curveball, and I'm going to say I think that people really should uh, to one another. You know, I think that's so important. Teach one another to help, you know, um, be a shoulder for, for others, especially that are less fortunate, um, to, to give back, um, whether it's charity, whether it's just to be more diligent and, and deliberate about your social media use by posting things that are less inflammatory, more helpful. When I see suffering, I'm profoundly affected by it. And there's a lot of suffering going on in the world, both in terms of health, um, food scarcity, things like that. So just, you know, do your, do your part.
I think everybody should try it because if you're anything like me and for decades you're eating damaged fats and those damaged fats are causing inflammation. So I have a high inflammation response. Strike two in the my desire to live forever. Um, high inflammation response. So I have, uh, there's a name for it. It's something graphia on the skin. So you can write in my skin, not as much now, but when I was younger, you could take your fingernail and write your name hmm. and it would welt up on my skin. So I have like a very high inflammation response, which explains the wrists, but I was eating damaged fats. I had no concept that like trans fat was a thing. All You ready for, you want to hurt a little to yeah. hear how I grew up? I do actually. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> uh, so my mom didn't want me, she wanted me, so I argued about food. I had like real food trauma as a kid and I was a super picky eater. And so finally at 13, my mom was just tired of arguing with me about it. So she said, fine, you can make your own food. So I wanted to make chicken nuggets because, of course, we had a deep fat fryer in the house, as you do in Tacoma. Damn. And uh, she said, no way. You can't have chicken nuggets. They're not good for you. But you can't have turkey nuggets and french fries. So I ate deep fried turkey nuggets and french fries almost every night for five years. Wow. From the time I was 13 until I graduated high school. And... That, of course, was exactly why I was inflamed. And then I go to college and don't know any better, so I keep eating bad food. Like when I first went low carb, I would go to Panda Express. I would get orange chicken, but no rice because I had no concept that sugar could hide in a sauce. That didn't make sense to me. So I had just, I had years of intaking things in places that I didn't realize I was intaking them. So getting your fat source right not taking in damaged fats, getting healthy fats. I think for a lot of people that struggle with inflammation, it is admittedly a game of not eating a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But then because I went for two years, literally, dude, this is so close to accurate that I'll just make this statement. All I ate was steamed broccoli and boiled chicken breast. Hmm. So I'm not the guy that's like, I'm eating chicken and broccoli. I don't understand the problem. And then you watch me eat it and I've got orange sauce on it. And, you know, I'm putting like all these different sauces and dressings and it was boiled chicken breast and steamed broccoli. And I got shredded, shredded. So I've seen the photos on your Instagram. Hey, (laughs) it it worked from that perspective, but from a a joint inflammation perspective, it was a nightmare. So for sure, it was the addition of fat because I had already removed all of the pro-inflammatory stuff. So this was a deficiency in either just the fat or whatever all the other things are that red meat contains. And maybe that's it. Maybe it. Maybe it's not the fat, but well, there's no like the there, there's no doubt that certain fats are good for you. So I, I guess I should clarify. I'm not. I'm not against high fat at all because I am very interested in a ketogenic diet. And in fact, I think I advocate for seasonal ketosis um, or, or at the very least intermittent ketosis, whatever that means to you. I think it's important to, you know, on a maybe daily, monthly, seasonal basis to, uh, you know, allow your brain access to ketones, which are, you know, a quote unquote super fuel that can supply 60% of your brain's energy, which, um, you know, is now being studied for, it's been used for over a century for, you know, to treat, hard to treat epilepsy. And now it's being studied for its efficacy in improving memory in Alzheimer's disease patients and and things like that. Uh, But I'm not a pro, I'm not very big on the, on lots of added oil in the diet, which I think, you know, once people started becoming interested in high fat diets, you know, now suddenly the pendulum swang in the other direction where people were putting... Because I thought you were all about olive oil. I am. So to a point, I think it's important to integrate olive oil into your diet. 
I'll use, you know, a liter a week. I use it fairly liberally. But when it comes to like throwing coconut oil in my smoothie or butter in my coffee, I do occasionally enjoy butter in my coffee. I like the taste. But, um, but you know, I think it's important to remember, and we've been saying this in the fitness community, as I'm sure you know, for, for years, don't drink your calories. Mm. You don't want to do the same. You want to basically adhere, the same, adhere to the same advice when it comes to oil too, because oil is not a very nutrient-dense food. It's very calorie-dense. It's not nutrient-dense. But I don't make any restrictions on the fats naturally contained in whole foods. So nuts, seeds, grass-fed beef, dark meat, chicken, things what like that. What do you eat? Uh, well, I'm actually, I mean, people will debate about phytic acid and things like that, but I'm, what do you eat? Well, I like almonds. Almonds are a great source of magnesium and vitamin E. I like them raw. Okay. I'm not too concerned with the, with the, you know, phytate in almond skins or, you know, anything like that. I'll try to soak them, you know, when I have the opportunity, but often you uh, soak them. If you soak them, they're gross. They become gross. What do you do with them? Do you you, re-dry them? Because like my wife, when she went through the whole microbiome disaster, the doctor was like, hey, try soaking yeah. the almonds. And it was fucking gross. She was like, yeah, I'd rather just get, not eat them. They can get slimy. The last time I did it, which was a few weeks ago, I soaked them and then I tossed them in olive oil and then a little bit of sea salt and I, roast, and I roasted and them. And they were still wet. They, they can, actually came out really good. Um, huh. if, you, if you just soak them, they can become, I think, a bit slimy. But, but you soak them and then get rid of the slime by just putting olive oil on them? I don't understand. I keep waiting for some drying process. Yeah. No drying. I'm Have you ever had sprouted nuts? Maybe that's well. I think maybe that's what I did. Well, but I sprouted s- nuts, I'm almost certain, go through a drying process. At least when you eat them, they're dry as. F- so I you do soak sp- them in a jar and then you pour out the liquid uh-huh. and then they they dry during the last. For how long? I think I did it for three days. Okay, maybe we just f- did it wrong, but yeah. they were gnarly. Now sprouted nuts, which I think they sprout by soaking, uh, but is. By the time they are packaged, they're dry and delicious. Hmm. And this is one of those where I would not have believed. So if you take pecans that have been just, they do every bad thing to them you can imagine. They put all the wonderful, delicious, and deadly oils on it, which tastes f***ing awesome. I actually like the sprouted pecans better. Hmm. So it's one of the few times where the thing that I like better is actually better for me. Uh, But I get down with sprouted nuts. So what else? You've got almonds that you soak. Uh, Yeah, although... I'll often if I'm if I'm traveling and I buy you know I'll occasionally buy a bag of raw almonds so I'll eat them like that uh, I'll use slivered almonds as a condiment sometimes I'll throw them in, into a salad um, but I get a lot of fat from I eat a lot of red meat I eat a lot of fatty fish I eat a lot of dark meat chicken so wait a second I want to go back to the nuts you only yeah. eat almonds so when you say no. nuts you mean almonds macadamia nuts are great because they're very high in monounsaturated fat. Uh, I've been eating a lot of Brazil nuts uh, lately for the selenium. Oh, I can't deal with those. I love those, actually. So I used to not. What does selenium help with? Selenium is an important antioxidant in the brain. Um, it's crucially important, and it's also crucially important for thyroid health. So it actually helps. Can't you eat too many Brazil nuts? Like yes. I heard that somewhere. Yeah. So how many are you eating a day? Uh, three to four. You want okay. to be kind of conscious of, of your you know selenium intake. It's similar to vitamin A. You don't want to like overconsume retinol, which is you know the uh, active form of vitamin A. Super weird vitamin A story. Is it true that polar bear liver yeah. has some like obscene amount It'll of kill you. vitamin A? It can, it can, That's what it I can heard. Like you, yeah. there was some crazy story about these guys trapped in a cabin in like Antarctica. Did you hear about this? F- polar bears are evil, man. Wow. Straight evil. Have you? They're like, the fact that they're on Coca-Cola as like the sweet, cuddly thing, those motherfuckers 
are wildly intelligent and they will fuck you up. Doesn't surprise me. And so there's this whole story about these guys trapped and the polar bears would trick them and they, oh God, what they do? They, they would have like one standing out front and then the other one would actually attack through the back door. I don't remember the story well, but the punchline is they finally kill these things. They're so like raged out about how they had been picking them off one by one. They eat the fuckers and they, but then one of them like dies or something from eating the liver because there was toxicity of vitamin, a, vitamin a toxicity. Yeah. It's uh, it's super concentrated in bear liver. Um, that's so weird. That's so random. So random. But well, I mean, it's not that unusual because actually that's one of the reasons why liver from beef or chicken. Why don't other animals have that same level of toxicity? Is well, it, the, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly what my hypothesis would be that bears are going to store a lot more stuff in the liver, which is a storage organ because they hibernate. So maybe they're storing vitamin A and all. I mean, you store vitamin B12 in your liver. You store all kinds of things. It's a it's a storage organ for, you know, choline for different nutrients. I just read something and it may have been in your book. I just came across it. But forgive me if it wasn't in your book talking about bears and they have some specific reaction because of their need to hibernate they don't have the muscle wasting they store something in their fat nope wasn't in mm, your book not so you're not gonna be yeah. able to help me <laughs> i don't remember the exact factoid but it's it pretty interesting about something that bears um oh god this is a waste because i can't mm. finish this off but it was something uh, the mechanism by which bears spare their muscle there was something for us to take away in terms of amino acids i mean growth hormone is pretty probably pretty conserved throughout the animal kingdom uh, or at least um, among among mammals and growth hormone one of the things that that helps to do is to preserve lean mass during a fasted state it's one of the reasons why growth hormone becomes pretty sharply elevated when fasting um fasting is interesting you go pretty deep on that in the book yeah he went into that if i remember right in the timing section in the timing section, yeah, because I have a, a section where I talk about our relationship with time and light, but also food. So light yeah. is the primary time setter that our brains use to, you know, to to get a sense of what time of day it is, which is important for the, you know, operation of pretty much every system in the body. Uh, you but, talk about there being ancillary clocks, which I thought was really interesting. So yeah. it's not just the light; it's it's also food. Yeah, it's also food. Food is a time setter because we have peripheral clocks. Um, the master clock in the brain is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it's housed in the hypothalamus, which is a very primordial uh, region of the brain. And within that structure, which controls everything from hunger to our drive for sex, um, it's at the base of the brain, essentially, which is where you'll find things that govern, you know, aspects of, of our behavior that are important for survival. Is it in, is it in the hypothalamus? Yes. It's actually wrapped inside of it? Yeah, it's a little chocolate chip-sized uh, region, um, in that area. And it interfaces directly with our eyes with proteins Interesting. in our eyes called melanopsin proteins, which are, um, light sensing, but they're not involved in vision. And that's pretty much our body's master, uh, clock setting apparatus. So when we perceive light at an intensity of about a thousand lux or higher, that sets off the 24 hour rhythm that guides essentially, you know, the run of show for, uh, you know, every system in the body. Um, I had the, the privilege of interviewing uh, Dr. Sachin Panda, who's a luminary in this field over at the Salk Institute for Biological Aging. And he was part of the team that, um, that discovered the melanopsin protein. And it's very interesting because uh, there's only a few of the, you know, of, of these proteins in the eye, in the retina, and 
they are really there to kind of interface with that with that master clock system. Um, and I think that's just another area of our biology where uh, modern life really, you know, seem tends to do a disservice to us, thrusting us all into a perpetual mm-hmm. state of jet lag. That's an interesting way to say it. What time do you eat your last meal? I try to eat my last meal about two to three hours before bed. I think you're making a mistake. Why? What are you? What's your? So I have a hypothesis. You. This is one of those things that. Are you saying I should be eating way earlier? Oh yes. Yeah. So I eat my last meal at two p.m. I'm done chewing at two p.m. So this all started. I could um, eat and go to bed literally within seconds and have no digestive problems whatsoever. Hmm. My wife used to say, I really think I need time between my last meal and when I go to bed. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And she was like, no, I really feel like that sometimes because she four years ago just got debilitated Mm. with digestive problems. And it was crazy. It was emergency rooms. It was like, what the is happening? It was malnutrition. Are you going to die? Like I was really scared. So we start looking at every aspect and she has this guess like, oh, I think that, and people weren't talking about this yet, at least not like the way that it's being talked about now where you, you can't avoid hearing about this. Um, you hadn't written your book yet. So let's start with that. Thank you for letting her suffer. No, I'm kidding. Um, so she starts talking about like, Hey, I think timing really matters. It didn't make sense to me. And she starts doing it and making me stay up for three hours. Cause I'm not going to go to bed and leave her hanging. So like if we're on vacation or something, she would say, Hey, you know, is there any way like if, cause she likes to eat actually quite late. Is there any way that we can stay up? Like if we eat at nine, we stay up till midnight. Yeah, of course, baby, I'll, we'll do it. And she was like, I really think it's helping. And so it just naturally put me on that same rhythm. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Like, now, even when I go like hardcore, I don't get an upset stomach. So like at Christmas time, I, I go off the rails. I'm having a lot of ice cream, all that. And I wasn't sure, is it the intermittent fasting? Because if I'm eating bad and I make sure that I fast for at least 16 hours, I'm golden. I can get away yeah. with murder. And so I thought, well, is it the, the length of fast or is it the number of hours? Because I find it much easier just if I'm going to clock because I when I'm really in it, I try to do 20 hour fast mm. daily. And that I feel I can stay lean easily. Um, it gets a little hard. The last hour or two admittedly is like, I have to like focus and alter my lifestyle. So I'm not trying to do something really cognitively demanding for the last two hours. But like, I find that's a, that's a good rhythm for me, 19 to 20 hours. And so I started wondering though, like I definitely feel better. I can get away with more. Um, but is it the length of fast? Is it the number of hours? Because if I'm going to go that long, I find it easier to, to eat my last meal late rather than trying to wake up and go six hours or seven hours without eating. Um, and because I wake up so early, like I'm usually awake between three and 4 AM. So with no alarm, it's just when I wake up and go to bed at nine, I wake up. Um, and so this Christmas when I went off the rails again, but this time I said, okay, I'm not going to worry so much about length of fast, but I'm really going to be hyper-conscious about clocking five hours before I go to bed. Hmm. Dude, cash money felt f- amazing. Yeah. So I really want my wife, like if I feel a benefit and I'm somebody that's got a pretty robust digestion, I want my wife to try five hours. I actually think most people think they're being just a f- rock star at three. 
I have a gut instinct that you're actually better like four and five hours before. Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them focus on efficiency because if you don't, you're gonna waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact right now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world, but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure, please listen up. Within you is a unique blend of ideas, dreams, and passions that no one else possesses, and it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. Easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today. And get your ideas out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com slash impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact. Poor bed. Well, I think you're probably right. I think that the ideal time to stop eating would probably be around 7 p.m. I mean, it depends on the time. Why is of, that ideal? Is that a sunset thing or yeah, something else? Yeah, because, well, you know, I th- we're diurnal creatures, right? We're, we're diurnal. We're meant to, you know, eat and do most of the things that we're going to do that are going to require the greatest energy expenditure during the day. Um, and, you know, we know that as night approaches and the sun begins to set and melatonin levels start to creep up and cortisol levels start to drop that uh, daylight associated activity sort of is, you know, becomes less supported in the body. Um, And that includes digestion and metabolism. And that's one of the reasons why we become less insulin sensitive sensitive later in the day, but also digestion um, falters to some degree. I mean, peristalsis slows, which is the transit of, Mm. you know, uh, 
food components through the through the GI tract. So I think it's probably you're probably better off stopping eating by like six to seven p.m. And in fact, the few but the the growing body of research in humans that's being done with early time restricted feeding also seems to back this up. That when we eat you know earlier dinners, it seems to be the to the benefit of our metabolic health, independent of weight loss. Now, for somebody like you who's eating only within a four-hour window, it's almost impossible, I think, within those four hours to overconsume calories. So, I mean, you're... Oh, my friend, come over. I'll show you how. Really? Do you not know I'm about inter- slippery foods, homie? I'm interested. Well, what are you eating whole, minimally processed like, foods? The, the reality is, I in my four-hour window, I don't overeat. And because if I overeat, then I, I can still put on fat for yeah. sure in a four-hour window, no problem. I could... I could, if I wasn't cognizant of um, what I'm eating, I could easily clock, and I'm talking every single day of my life, I could easily clock in that four-hour window, 4,000, 5,000 calories. That'd be pretty easy. I'd have to have ice cream. There's no question. So this was uh, the term slippery foods Hmm. comes from the um, gastric bypass community or lap band community where they have a smaller amount of space. So they get tricky, like the ones who sort of give up on staying on the straight and narrow, um, realize that if you eat things like ice cream, that's like really sort of liquidy, that you can pack a lot of calories. Well, that makes sense because ice cream is an ultra processed foods and ultra processed foods are defined in part because of the fact that they are so calorie dense. And that's one of the reasons why we see the obesity epidemic that we're now seeing because these foods, you know, essentially short circuit our brain satiety checkpoints. Mm. So if you're trying, if you're trying to eat, for example, the genius foods, you know, super nutrient dense foods within that four hour window, which we know are the foods that are going to be the best for you. Um, you know, which unfortunately doesn't include ice cream, uh, in that, in that, under that umbrella, Much to my dismay. I think it's probably gonna be pretty difficult to overconsume calories. So, I mean, that is a good way of, of basically, uh, drawing a line in the sand and, and maintaining some level of, of calorie control and probably what you're seeing are some of the benefits of calorie restriction, mm. which we know are numerous. You know, you can, you, it's a great way to reduce inflammation in smaller organisms. It's one of the few ways of extending life. Um, in a, in a rat or mouse. Um, well, they've done that. The caloric restriction they've done across like dozens of species, right? Like ringworms and yeast and fruit flies and things like that. Yeah. It seems to be pretty, you're not going to be able to kind of prove that in a human, I don't think, but yeah, calorie restriction. You won't be able to prove the longevity because people won't comply and because it's such and a because long, people live for a yeah. long time. But I mean, the, it seems that the, that, you know, if humans are anything like other mammals or smaller organisms or, or, you know, I mean, cause it seems to be a very consistent, uh, thing in the literature that, that calorie restriction is, you know, one of the few ways to extend the lifespan of a, of a, of an organism. Mm. Um, so you're probably getting some of those benefits. What, back when I first started doing, and you know, science is continually evolving, but when I started doing the research on, on fasting, I was less convinced that the feeding window really mattered, but the more the research comes out, the more research comes, you know, comes out, I've sort of refined my thinking a bit on it. And I do think that it is probably wiser to begin your feeding sort of earlier in the day um, and to stop eating earlier in the day as well, because we're these diurnal creatures. And the day is when our insulin sensitivity is most primed and when, you know, our metabolisms are most primed to, you know, burn off ingested energy, store ingested energy and digest food mm. um, in a way that's that's as efficient as it's going to be. Yeah. My thing with that is this is not, you know, the thing that you can turn into a scientific paper, but 
just going by experience. So originally I was like, oh, I'll skip breakfast. You know, I can stay busy. I'll go work out and work out fasted, all of that. Like that'll let me sort of draw this out. But I found myself naturally wanting to eat pretty soon after a workout. Like just the impulse was there. Now I can override the impulse. Like I said, the change or die mechanism of setting a a line in my life and, and being disciplined about it. I'm very good at that. But I did find myself distracted by hunger if I tried to push, you know, six, eight hours after I woke up before I had my first meal. So I thought, like, would I actually be better off front loading my calories and then seeing how I do because because my calories were still clocking in at, say, 1,800 or 2,000 calories a day. I would start getting hungry right around bedtime, but I wouldn't have any trouble falling asleep. I wouldn't have any trouble staying asleep. And then when I woke up, my hunger had reset. So I didn't wake up hungry like I went to bed hungry. So I would essentially have sleep for dinner. So I thought, let me try it and see how I do. And it worked awesome. Hmm. And so that was when I went from like struggling to make 16 hours to I could push and I could do 18 pretty easily. And with some effort, I could get up to 20. And so I probably averaged... 19.5 hours a day fasting for 90 days or something like that. Like I I found that relatively easy. 18 I can do as a no brainer. Um, But it's much easier for me to have my last meal done chewing by two in bed by nine up by three, four first meal around eight, nine. Yeah. That rhythm works for me. Yeah. I think you're also at an advantage in that scenario because you're going to bed at nine. I go to bed at like midnight or 1230. I go to bed, I go to bed a bit later. Um, wouldn't the timing sleep guy say that that's a bit too late? You know, it's probably not ideal. Um, is that your natural rhythm though? Because but, do you yeah. believe in chronotypes? Is that a thing for you? No, I'm not. I'm, I don't really, uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with any potential research there, but, um, but all the sleep authorities, I think, seem to advocate for eight hours of sleep, you know, seven and a half to eight hours of sleep. And what do you get if you don't have an That's alarm? what I do get. Do you get that? Seven and I a half, get, eight? Yeah. So even though I go to bed late, I get generally, you know, seven and a half to eight hours of hmm. sleep, if not more every night. I'm a very good sleeper. Um, and I orient my life in a way that, you know, my sleep is sacred. So my room is very dark. I keep it cool. Um, How cool do you keep it? I keep it around 65 degrees. Do you not wake up cold? Or do you just blank it up? I feel like I'm not, I feel like I'm suffocating unless I'm breathing in cool air. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. But 68 for me is the max. I start going below that and I just wake up in the yeah. middle of the night. I can't f- sleep because I'm so cold. So cold. I mean, I use a warm blanket and I sleep with a, uh, a pillow on top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So I sleep with the blankets over my head entirely. I, I have since I was a little kid. People always like girlfriends and obviously now my wife look at me like, what the f- are you doing how do you breathe i love it sometimes i will put the blanket over my eyes because i want that cool air in my mouth yeah but for the most part it's just under the sheets so it i definitely blanket up and i love that i'm under the covers but at south of 68 that cold seeps in and so do you still get the benefits of the cool air because i could do more blankets obviously but am i getting any benefit at that point because i'm not actually cool Yeah. Um, that's an interesting question. I don't think that you're, I think that it's really, you know, being cool as you're winding down, you know, because your body temperature begins to, to lower, uh, right before bed. Um, so I don't think that you have to, 
I'm actually, I'm not sure. I mean, I know a lot of people that are now using these cooling mattresses or these cooling mm-hmm. covers. Yeah. Um, and they're reporting, you know, anecdotally, you know, improvements in their sleep, mm-hmm. you know, for that. But, uh, yeah, I don't think that your body necessarily has to be the temperature of the room, but I do think generally just being in a cooler environment. There have also been some really interesting studies, um, and I and I cite a few of them in the book, where uh, people that um, sleep in these sort of cooler environments overnight, they tend to see a greater proliferation of brown fat, brown adipose tissue, which is very healthy, metabolically active. And in those studies, they were not sleeping without covers. They were not sleeping exposed to the air. They were just sleeping in a cooler room. You hear about that chick that swam the Bering Strait? I did not. I really need to look her up because I brought the story up several times. I can never remember her name. But to do that, she had to transition her adipose tissue into brown fat. And she was living in Alaska, if I'm not mistaken. And she, she took exclusively cold showers. Think about how cold the water would be in Alaska. Yeah. And then slept through the winter with the window open and no blankets. That seems like you're just going to get hypothermia and die. But she was able to swim the Bering Strait. That's the space between Alaska and Russia. It's pretty nuts. Crazy. That's cold water. That's I do cold I do regular water. cold water immersion, and so I will attest that you do acclimate. It does get easier as you start For to sure. cultivate. Walk brown me fat. through your uh, your strategy. What do you do? Exactly. Oh man. Well, I'm a so as I mentioned, you know the three P's of of detoxification and, and perspiring. perspiring. So yep. sauna is a huge aspect. We're going to get to that in a minute because okay. you talked about that in your book. I've I've gone deep on cold stuff, but not the heat. So I, I yep. want to go full blown on that in a minute. But t- what's your cold setup? Uh, so I go into, I, you know, have the, the, I'm fortunate enough to be able to go to, uh, gyms and spas that have, um, cold, you know, cold pools, cold plunges. Yep. What are they at? 55? Uh, they're at 50, 48 to 50. Ooh, 48, to 50. 48 is, yeah. that'll get your attention. Yeah. And very recently I had the opportunity to do 42, which was, Whoa. which was, that's got to hurt. Like at that point, it's not just cold. It's actually painful. I think it's, but it's very much a mind over matter thing. Cause even, even, I was able to do four minutes under 42 degrees. And I feel like once you're able to do up four minutes. Up to your neck? Yeah, up to my neck. You really want to make sure up that. Up to your chin. Yeah. For you, those uh, not watching at home, that, that wasn't just neck. Yeah, it was like basically up to here. Like okay. Up to, yeah, up to, the, up to the chin pretty much. 48 degrees. You accumulate brown fat. It's not everywhere that you find brown fat. It's around the collarbone. It's in the back of the neck. Mm. It's along the spine, under the armpits. So if you're just going up to waist depth in this, in you know, in in your in the pond or whatever it is that you're that you're using for your cold water immersion, I don't think that you're getting the full uh, range of benefits. Mm. So yeah, so I'll sink myself. You know, I'll do four to five minutes. I do it until I basically can't do it anymore. And the level of mental acuity that I feel afterwards is just like almost pharmacological in terms of it's like you know, how, you how powerful it is. It's amazing. How long does it last for you, that acuity? Uh, it, I mean, it lasts for a while. And I would contrast it to... So if I were to do sauna, I feel really good after a sauna, but I do feel kind of lethargic. Yes. you know, And that Just can persist for, through the rest of the night pretty much. That's my next question. So now I want to know your whole heat routine. And well, so let's wrap up the cold. So you do the cold, it's immersion, it's up to your chin, it's as long as you can take it, it's roughly 48 to 50. 48 to 50 degrees. degrees. Yeah. And we do that how often? I do that three to four days a week. I don't do it after um, exercise, directly after exercise. There seems to be wow. a growing body of literature that's suggesting that it's actually sort of counter to the anabolic you stimulus. You want the inflammation. Yeah, you want a little bit of the inflammation. But I when actually do, do it then before, late at night? I'll do it hours later or on okay. days where I'm not doing like resistance training. Mm. 
Um, but I actually have, I have like low back issues. And so for me, countering that inflammation. Yeah. How did you get low back issues from, uh, from like a, just being stupid and not warming up, uh, under the squat rack a couple of years ago. Squats. Yeah. I thought you were going to say deadlift for sure. No. And this has persisted. It's persisted. Yeah. It's, it's getting, it's way better though. Thanks to like all these different modalities, eating an anti-inflammatory diet in general, uh, you know, exercising as much as I can staying active. I mean, ironically staying active, which, you know, people with back pain are going to be like, Oh, you know, it's like, it's groan inducing, but it's the best thing that you can do. The only time my low back ever hurts is when I stop deadlifting. Yeah. When I, well, I mean, you can deadlift heavy and really yourself up. So be super careful. But, um, mid range stuff that I can do 12 reps of that kind of thing. If I'm doing that consistently, I'm fine. Never have back pain when I stop, then I get trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Staying active is crucially important, but, and you know, cold immersion is a, is a great modality for pain relief. It's, it's just amazing. Um, it's good for mental acuity. It's good for, I, I find that it's, it powerfully improves my mood if I'm anxious or I'm feeling depressed. Um, I mean, and I'm not the only person to talk about this, like Wim Hof, you know, he, he's talked about the mood boosting effects mm-hmm. of, of cold immersion, but, um, but for me, I think it's, it's super powerful and the metabolic benefits I think are among the most interesting and most important aspects of cold immersion. So whether it's just ambient room temperature or doing regular cold immersion, um, they're showing that just modulating the ambient temperature of your environment can boost, uh, glucose or you know glucose glucose tolerance insulin sensitivity in the body can help you know boost your metabolic rate and things like that so for anybody struggling with slow metabolism or insulin sensitivity issues um i think that this is a a really underappreciated modality that can help potentially boost your health yeah and and you really go into it in the book um this is one of my favorite sections so now take me into the heat so this is one of those it's been on my radar but because it's not and maybe I just haven't done it because I've never done a sauna. And maybe that's the You've problem. You've never done a sauna? No, never. And I have one in my house. Damn. Um, so I'm going to try it. Like after reading the book, I was like, I legitimately can't believe. Yeah. So anyway, I need to do it. It's ridiculous. So the reason I haven't done it, though, is because warm is deeply comforting to me. So the cold sucks. Cold hurts. I don't want to do it. Therefore, I do do it. I don't have any fears around heat. Um, so it's like, it just seemed too easy. It seemed too easy to be beneficial. So I've just never done the research. So reading your book, I was like, like there's actually a lot going on. Like I'll say that you sold the heat exposure even better than you sold the cold exposure. So like the, you put the, um, the list down of like people that do like two to four saunas a day, like uh, a week, excuse me, versus like the reduction in um, Alzheimer's or heart disease in, in, in in stroking crazy disease, dementia. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this research is coming out of the university of Eastern Finland, which is an amazing place to have this research being done Mm -hmm. because Finland is the sauna capital of the world. And they do dry sauna, right? So no steam. So actually dry and wet sauna are different from steam rooms. A steam room is a steam room, and then you have dry and wet sauna. Yep. A dry sauna basically just means that you can't throw water yeah, on the yeah. rocks, and a wet sauna is, you know. And what's the difference in terms of its impact? Uh, I think it's just a, a com- like a, a preference, personal preference. Okay, so from yeah. a study perspective, because you specifically call out in the book that it was a dry sauna, so I was like, yeah. oh, shit, I won't do the water thing. Well, that I believe is where is what they sort of looked at in the research. Um, in Finland, it's the most common, I guess, sauna modality. Uh, although it's a combination of dry and wet. But I think in the U.S., most people think about wet sauna as mm. steam. 
And in fact, that's what I thought. Uh, I thought a steam room was a wet sauna. So did I. Yeah. To be honest. But it's actually, it's actually not. So I think I, I think I refer to saunas in general as being dry saunas because um, most people in the U.S., sauna is not as common. Most people have, at least in the gyms that I have access to, all that's available to me are steam rooms. And they have different impacts or it's just not studied yet? Not studied yet. So probably okay. similar impact. I personally like to, my personal preference is, well, the research is on the side of the, of the sauna. Um, it's coming out of Finland. People in Finland are using dry, dry saunas uh, for the most part. They're not using steam rooms. And so if you want sort of the research on your side, you know, you've got to do the dry. So walk me through the benefits because they were legion. Yeah, they're legion. I mean, on the, uh, for one, using a sauna acts like an exercise mimetic. And what temperature are we talking about here? About 200 degrees, you know, 175 to 205 degrees is like, Fuck, the, is like the range. 205? Yeah, it's great. It's like a Russian banya. It's like Jesus. amazing. Not for very long. I was going to say like, uh, so you're not a doctor, blah, blah, blah. Consult your physician. Yes. But um, uh, give me ballpark temperature because I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. Yeah. I mean, I was in a sauna last night and it was about 203 Jesus. degrees. Yeah, it was very hot. It was and a Russian in banya. For how, I don't know what that means. It's like classic old Russian, old school, like very hot pretty much. Okay. So 203-ish yeah. degrees. And you sit there for how long? Um, I mean, it's like it's, an oven, dude. I know it's an oven. It's my, it's, if it's my first go around, I'll be able to stay in for, you know, 15, 20, okay. 25 minutes. So it's not, an, you know, an extreme amount of time, but as you do a couple of rounds, your tolerance sort of diminishes. And that's when, you know, you've diminishes sort of, your tolerance diminishes in the same day or same day. Okay. Your but tolerance if I, if increases over the day. Yeah. If you're, to- I think over the macro, your tolerance does increase. You acclimate, and that's mm. been, I think, shown in the literature as well. Um, but in the micro, it's just like exercise. I mean, like you're you're not as strong on your last set as you sure. are on your first set. And um, sorry, you were saying that it's an exercise mimetic, so it mimics some of the effects of exercise of aerobic exercise, like mild to moderate aerobic exercise. You can feel this if you sit in a sauna. You put your finger over the radial artery in your wrist, and you'll notice it starts to beat. You'll like if you look at your heart rate, it's similar to what it would be if you were jogging on a treadmill. Really? Yeah. And in fact, I I've been I've in never a, done this. It's ridiculous. It's amazing. It's ri- it's truly, I think, medicinal. And there's even been moments in the sauna where, you know, one of the uh, indicators of high intensity exercise that's reaching like a lactic threshold is you fail the talk test. You're no, no longer able to talk while you're exercising. Okay, um, right, right, right. I thought you were saying in the sauna. I was like, Jesus, well, no, get out. It can, I mean, I've been in the sauna where it's been so hot where I've actually had to get out because it's like, it's so hot. I can't even like talk anymore. So, Whoa. but that's the point at which you want to like Do exit the sauna. people pass out in these f-ing things? I've never seen it. You don't want to pass out. Yeah. You don't exactly. want to pass out. Um, but you do want to bring your body to a point of discomfort because mm. this is a, another at 205 form of, degrees. You're going to be deeply uncomfortable. Arizona yeah. is uncomfortable. So there you go. Deg- Jesus. It's okay. hot. Now I'm scared. That's good. That makes me want to do it more. It's it hot, but you schwitz, you sweat. And sweating, you know, so aside from the fact that it kind of gives your, you get like a cardio workout and it boosts blood flow, it increases nitric oxide. So, I mean, if you've ever had just to sort of, um, 
paint a picture. If you've ever had a, uh, an injured joint or a swollen ankle and you put a hot compress on it, it brings blood to the surface, right? It gets really warm and red and it promotes healing because it boosts nitric oxide and it, it you know brings nutrients uh, to the area of injury. The same thing happens on a full body scale when you sit in a sauna because you're essentially applying a hot compress to the entirety of your body. Mm. So it's amazingly healing and... Um, and that's one of the reasons I think why it's been associated with such dramatic risk reductions for stroke, for heart disease. Um, do you do this shit like. at night, the morning, midday? Where am I at? Well, heat it's actually raising my heart rate, so it makes me worry about doing it too close to bedtime. You probably don't want to do it too close to bedtime because, yeah, for that reason, because it can be an exercise mimetic. Exercise acts like a time setter as well. You don't want to do it too close to bedtime. Um, in fact, I would say. <clears throat> If there is an optimal time to do sauna, you probably want to do it post-workout because actually heat seems to potentiate uh, the, you know, the anabolic effects of exercise, exercise adaptation and the like. Um, but I'll do it, you know, when I do it, I tend to do, because I'm, I'm, I go to a place that has a hot and cold, mm. I do what's called contrast therapy. So I'll sit in the sauna for 25 minutes and then I'll go cool off in the cold and then I'll go back and forth. And so you can is there, is there research on that? Cause I worry that that's a bit like doing the cold after the exercise where if you're going to do the hot, do the hot. And if you're going to do the cold, do the cold. Yeah. And that mixing the two sounds like, and I'm wildly ignorant on this, so I could be totally wrong, but intuitively that feels wrong. Yeah, like one would negate yeah, the other. Yeah, that they're going to like, you're sort of on the path of one, your heat shock proteins are kicking off and then you go cool down. Yeah. I'm not actually aware of any research that would like show that that would be a negative thing. If anything, I would think because it's this accumulation of stress, if you're doing it on a day where you haven't gone to the gym, for example, I think probably the net is positive. Hmm. Um, but I couldn't tell you. Contrast therapy, I haven't seen any direct research on, on contrast therapy, but it is a modality that's been used traditionally. For, you hear people talk about it a lot. For for sure. Yeah, I mean, they do it in Finland. You know, that's where they're, where, you know, they they're go seeing the all these benefits. And they come back in. Yeah. In fact, I had the, I had the ability, I had the privilege of getting to do it in Finland recently. It was so much fun. Um, and then I think, you know, it's pretty clear that perspiring, you release, you know, all kinds of heavy metals, certain heavy metals. Cadmium, I'm told. Cadmium, um, BPA, phthalate. You sweat out BPA? Yeah. That's interesting. You can easily find... Um, if you go to PubMed and search for blood, sweat, urine studies, uh, you can look at a lot of this stuff. Like the data is out there. You can, you know, find what we are excreting through our, um, through our sweat, what seems to be excreted, you know, in higher concentration in urine, um, and the like. So it's, uh, it's out there for people to see, but it's a major you know, I think it's super interesting. And the fact that this research is being done in Finland, I think, is very telling because if you were to do a study, you know, an observational study on the population of sauna goers in the U.S., there's probably a very strong healthy user bias. You know, people who are using saunas are probably, you know, people who have it in their homes. So they're affluent or they have access to fancy gym memberships or they're spending a lot of time in the spa taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. But in Finland, you know, Finland saunas are as common as showers. There's on average one sauna for every household in Finland. Whoa. So it's just a super commonplace ritual that's just embedded in the culture. So that's where I think this research, uh, you know, where there's a lot of sort of credence to the notion that saunas could be 
um, beneficial to health because they just do it. It's, you know, it's such a, it's so ingrained in the culture there. So I'm going to give you a weird anecdote. It is purely anecdotal. Sure. But I was on Saturday and Sunday, I was eating the toppings off of Domino's pizza. <laughs> and the only toppings I get are cheese and I would do really light sauce. So even that was like very little. So I would do the cheese, um, olives, pepperoni. And I was eating it and loved it. And I just started noticing on a Sunday that every Sunday night I would feel like hot from the inside of my body. Wow. And it was just like a little eh, uncomfortable and I'd sleep a little weird that night. And I'm like, why am I... Always on Sunday. And on like Saturday, I would allow myself to cheat. So if I wanted a candy bar, I'd have a candy bar. If I wanted a bit of ice cream, I'd have ice cream. But on Sunday, I wouldn't. So Sunday, it was just the toppings from Domino's. There was nothing else in my diet that I would consider, you know, sort of a cheat. And finally, I was like, is it possible that I have a bad reaction to dairy? So let me do the same thing, but go to like really light cheese. Hmm. And it stopped happening. Interesting. So I was like, whoa. The only thing I affected was the amount of cheese that I was intaking over multiple meals because I would get a pizza on Saturday and a pizza on Sunday. So I'm now cutting both of them in half effectively in terms of the amount of cheese. And the, the effect went away 100%. Now, I know that's anecdotal, but I was like, whoa, maybe dairy really is doing some negative thing. So you couple that with all the literature saying there's an issue. I know a lot of people have skin responses like yeah. acne and stuff from dairy. Right. Everybody's different. So I wouldn't, you know, I'm not uh, saying that everybody should should go out, especially if, you're, if you know that you're sensitive to it. Um, I mean, some people do feel better cutting out casein, which is... But aren't you saying like at a meta level, the people that, and I mean, maybe this is the people that eat dairy yeah. are pre-selected because they're not lactose Well, there are also, there's some level? confounding variables here, right? Because like Domino's pizza, who knows like if that's even cheese. Don't you dare say something <laughs> bad about my Domino's. No, I mean, I'm, I'm being glib, but like wh- who knows what, is it, is it, is it just cheese or maybe it's like some kind of like processed cheese yeah. cut with grain and seed oils? That is a know. terrifying but very possible it's, yeah, it's, proposition. It is possible. So I would, I would try to like A, B test that by going and, and getting some like some, some higher quality cheese that you know is just cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there could be some kind of interaction with like the, you know, the oils and the, and the emulsifiers that are sometimes used. I mean, that's the thing is that restaurants are notorious cost cutters. I'm a big advocate of steering away as best as one can from grain and seed oils because in restaurants we know that they're just they're they're heated and they're reheated and they're, they're they become toxic you know essentially by the time they're served on the plate, um, and so that's just a problem with like with eating out in general. You can't always predict how a food is going to make you feel. My wife knows that all too well, and we had the very. Uh, unpleasantly eye-opening experience of realizing that even a lot of high-end restaurants, when they say that it's just olive oil, it's really blended oil. And so you now have to ask very specifically, is this blended oil or is this 100% extra virgin olive oil? The servers will never know. They always go back and ask the chef. And then they're always as surprised as anybody else and say, oh my God, we, you know, I didn't realize, but this actually is blended oil. Yeah. We're like, whoa. Yeah. So, and that just absolutely ruins Lisa's stomach. So. Oh yeah, it's bad. I, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, this is controversial too. There, there is within the nutritional and medical orthodoxy, there is still a major push towards these ultra refined, refined bleached and deodorized grain and seed oils, mm-hmm. which to me are such low quality food. 
I mean, let's just, I mean, just from a food quality standpoint alone. And give me some of the, um, are we talking canola oil here? Like what's the, not necessarily name brand, but yeah. like what's the type of thing I'm pulling off the shelf? So canola oil is probably, and I'm not an advocate for the consumption of canola oil, but it's probably the best of the gaggle. Really? Because it's, a, it's, it's got a higher proportion of monounsaturated fat, hmm. which is chemically quite stable. I'm not advocating for it. Um, I, I personally avoid it. Um, but why do you avoid it if it's well because it's in that it's in that category of of refined bleached and deodorized grain and seed oil so canola oil corn oil soybean oil so um, it's offensive but the least offensive right okay how i would so i get then what makes it offensive what makes it the least offensive well one of the major problems with these grain and seed oils is that they have a very high proportion of what's called polyunsaturated fatty acids PUFAs Mm -hmm. for short and PUFAs are not in any way dangerous right they're found in all fat-containing foods contain some proportion of PUFAs, right? So grass-fed beef has PUFAs in it. Wild fatty fish has PUFAs in it. Avocados have some component, some pr- proportion of, of PUFAs in it. The issue is that in whole foods, those PUFAs, which are very delicate and damage-prone, they're prone to a, a form of chemical disfigurement called oxidation. They're protected in whole foods by the antioxidants that nature has, has, has packaged them with, right? Nature thought ahead. Nature was like, these fats are very delicate, they're very damage prone. Let's bundle foods that contain these polyunsaturated fats in any significant quantity with vitamin E, which is mm-hmm. one of the most important fat-soluble antioxidants in nature, right? The issue with grain and seed oils is that, A, these fats are rich in polyunsaturated fats, which are very delicate and damage prone. And whether it's via heat um, or, or mechanical or chemical extraction... Um, they're subject to forces that accelerate this oxidative process, right? Light, heat, and oxygen all catalyze and accelerate this oxidative process. And they're stripped of the antioxidants that in whole foods would protect them. So the reason why I would say that canola oil is, you know, maybe the best of of the worst is that it's got a a lower proportion of these polyunsaturated fat, uh, of these polyunsaturated fats. On the other hand, it's got a higher proportion of omega-3 fats, which are actually more delicate and damage-prone than omega-6 fats. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, again, advocating for their consumption, but, um, but, you know, it's got a higher proportion of of monounsaturated fat, which monounsaturated means it only contains one double bond, which means that under normal circumstances, it's actually quite chemically stable. That monounsaturated fat is the primary fatty acid found in extra virgin olive oil. It's also found in abundance in grass-fed beef and wild salmon and the like. But all of these grain and seed oils, whether we're talking about canola oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil is probably the worst um, because it's about, I believe, 80 to 90% polyunsaturated fat. In, during the production chain, they all undergo a process, a step called deodorization, which is the food industry's equivalent of the witness protection program. It basically it takes these oils, which would otherwise contain really bitter flavors, noxious, noxious uh, aromas that, that consumers wouldn't want, right? And it, it, it absolves them of any character. That's the deodorization step. Now, the issue is that that step creates a small but significant amount of trans fats, mm-hmm. which we know there's no safe level of, of trans fat consumption. I mean, the FDA banned their most um, common uh, occurrence, the partially hydrogenated fat, fats. Why is that? So my understanding, and it's probably a super lay person's understanding of trans fats, is that basically the... The, the bonds in it become rigid. So it's normally the fat molecule is quite squishy and it becomes rigid. And then when those 
when you uptake that into your body and you use those fat cells to make your own cell membranes, you're using these rigid, brittle um, fat cells. And so it makes the actual membrane on your own cells brittle and rigid. Is that More actually rigid. what's happening? Yeah. I mean, that's what happens when it, once those, those fats have, become, have been integrated into the phospholipid bilayer, which is what it's called, which is how those fats sort of orient themselves within the, um, the cell membrane. But it comes down to the double bonds and the fact that they are uh, electrochemically unstable. Um, and monounsaturated fats, the mono implies that they have one double bond. The polyunsaturated fats, the poly and polyunsaturated fats imply that they have multiple double bonds. And so on the spectrum of monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats, the monounsaturated fats are actually more saturated because they have fewer double bonds. When you have a double bond, so double bonds generally, they, what they do is they make a, a, a cell, they help promote the characteristic of membrane fluidity, which is actually the opposite. So it, they, because these double bonds, they cause a kink in the fatty acid chain, it doesn't allow the fatty, acid, um, the fatty acids to, to aggregate as tightly as they would with saturated fats. Saturated fats are straight, and so that allows them to pack together more tightly. And so that's why saturated fats are um, solid at room temperature. Mm. Polyunsaturated fats actually generally um, promote this characteristic of membrane fluidity. And we need polyunsaturated fats. So this is not to demonize them in any way. We need both the omega-6s and the omega-3s. And actually, the polyunsaturated fatty acid that's most abundant in grain and seed oils, linoleic acid, we do have some physiologic requirement for that fat, right? The issue is we overconsume it today, and we consume them in the form of these grain and seed oils, which, again, are prone to oxidation. And lipid peroxidation, in particular, is a major contributor to oxidative stress in the brain. So we don't even have the long-term data that makes me feel comfortable um, consuming these kinds of fats at the level that your average American is consuming them. We know that they lower LDL relative to saturated fat, and I think that's one of the, if not the reason, that the medical and nutritional orthodoxy loves them. Um, But yeah, they're they're prone to oxidation, and we know that the brain is a crucible for oxidative stress. And not just do they oxidize, but they generate these really toxic... Um, secondary products of oxidation, like aldehydes, certain aldehydes, which we know are, are no bueno. So I take a sort of precautionary principle um, approach, you know, with these with these fats, and I think that I think that they're they're definitely worth avoiding. Also, twenty percent of the oxygen that you're that you're using, your twenty percent of whole body oxygen consumption is being used by the brain, and the brain accounts for two percent of the body's mass. So twenty percent of the oxygen in in a container that that speaks for 2% of the mass of your body, right? It's a container that's ultimately the size of a grapefruit, right? So you've got all this oxygen being used to create energy in this tiny space, and your brain is comprised primarily of these kinds of fats, polyunsaturated fats. That's why we need to get them from diet, right? We need to get them, but we should be getting them from whole foods, from wild fatty fish, from nuts and seeds, from um, avocados, you know? But that's why the brain is essentially a crucible for oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is at the foundation of conditions like Alzheimer's disease, of Parkinson's disease. It can exacerbate pre-existing disease states, right? So it's a big problem. And I'm, I'm not going to say that you know, we have all the data to say that these seed oils are the smoking gun with, with conditions like Alzheimer's disease. By the way, these are multifactorial conditions. So you know, I'm not, I don't want to scare people into thinking that these 
oils are the cause of, the, of those conditions. And we, we honestly don't have that data to say even that, that they are with, with, with absolute certainty that they are causally related. That's the hypothesis. But I don't think that we will ever have that kind of data. That's sort of my plea to people, right? And the medical orthodox- Is what? Is to, is to approach these oils with great caution because they didn't exist in the human food supply mm. prior to 100 years ago. And mechanistically, we see that they're so prone to this, this sort of chemical, chemical degradation and disfigurement, and that's relevant to the brain. And also, I'll add, this is another important point, that the context in which these oils are being consumed is generally a diet that's low in antioxidants, low in, in fat-soluble antioxidants like vitamin E, which we know is crucially important. Vitamin E is one what of the most important... What do we eat to get vitamin E? So... Almonds are a fantastic source. Avocados are a fantastic source. Grass-fed, grass-finished beef is a great source of vitamin E. Mm -hmm. You've got three times the vitamin E in grass-finished beef as you have in grain-finished beef. Generally, in nature, wherever you find polyunsaturated fats, you find um, in the appropriate proportion vitamin E. That's like nature's way to protect these polyunsaturated fats. So we're eating more polyunsaturated fats than ever before in human history, and we're consuming less vitamin E. I think 90% of adults don't consume adequate, don't consume an adequate amount of vitamin E, which is uh, actually vitamin E represents about, I believe, eight um, isoforms of vitamin E. We underconsume, I mean, all of them because we're not eating, we're eating so few whole foods these days, mm-hmm. and we're we're over consuming these these grain and seed oils. The more polyunsaturated fats you consume, the higher your requirement for vitamin E, and most people aren't consuming adequate vitamin E. So I think, it's a, I think it's a huge problem. And anecdotally, totally anecdotally, you know that I got started because my mom was very sick. Yeah. She had a, a form of dementia for many years. She and had Lewy body dementia? Yeah. That's what Robin Williams had, right? Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Horrible disease, horrible disease. And, and my mom passed away three years ago. And this is just an anecdote. Take it with a grain of salt. But um, my mom ate a diet that um, any dietitian of the 80s and 90s would have said, she's well on done. the right path. Yeah. Well done. Good on you. I grew up with these grain and seed oils in my kitchen, right? Big plastic see-through jug of corn oil by the stove, yeah. margarine in my fridge. I grew you up and me eating. Both. Yeah, I grew up eating these kinds of fats. Now, I'm not going to say that they are what caused my mom's condition, but I do. You know, I, it's it's my hypothesis hypothesis that along with the overconsumption of grain and seeds, with with refined grain products, rather these oils. Um, yeah, I don't think that they're doing our, our health any favors. Yeah, I want to go back to this idea of victim blaming. You're such a kind person, and I love how you're trying to position this to make sure that the most people can hear you as humanly possible. But what I don't want to get lost in there is that, like I'll speak for myself, I have unintentionally made a lot of poor choices with my diet because I didn't know better. And then I've intentionally made poor choices with my diet because it was a lot of fun. And it's really important to me to now be at a place where I'm at least more or less to the best of everybody's belief at this point, I know what to do to like, if I'm feeling inflamed and my joints are hurting, I feel in control. I know what to do to bring that pain down. So I just want to make sure that it doesn't get lost in the kindness that there really are, there's cause and effect to what you eat. And while it's not all known, it will for sure change over time. You definitely shouldn't feel bad about even eating things that you know are bad for you. Like, don't feel bad about it, right? Like, when I eat bad foods, I'm not feeling guilty. I'm like, this is a trade-off, right? I may be shortening my life by some amount, but this is really fun, so I'm going to do it. 
And certainly if I didn't know any better, I mean, Jesus, what can you do? None of us really know, like, you know, what are we doing? Like when I discovered that blankets had like, you know, crazy chemicals in them, uh, I went out and bought an all-natural blanket. That shit is scratchy. So now I still use my old filled with terrible chemicals blanket because it's soft as hell. So, you know, my thing is, look, we're, I, I don't want anybody to feel ashamed or anything like that. But I want people to understand that you can get control of this, that if your diet is leading you somewhere that you don't want to go, that you really can learn about it and make choices that will yield a very different outcome. So for me, I look at my family. They're all morbidly obese. And... I, coming from the same stock, was headed in the same direction, learned about nutrition and was able to take myself in a completely different direction. So I really want people to understand you can eat whatever you want and I'm not judging you. I think it's amazing. Make your choices. Um, But hey, if you're ever getting a result that you don't want, you can make a new choice and get a new result. Yeah, so beautifully said. And to me, I think what what it really comes down to is um, giving people t- the tools to make uh, to 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 make an informed choice at the end of the day, because a lot of people when they show up to their doctor's office with these conditions that take years to develop, years mm-hmm. if not decades, right? They're like, "Why me?" And so, as long as I think I I know that I'm putting good information out to to help people make an informed choice, then then by all means indulge when when you choose to, because no single meal, single indulgence is going to sway your health in any direction, positive or negative. No, you know, it's not eating for optimal brain health. Isn't about eating a handful of berries every once in a while. It's about your dietary pattern as a whole. It's about how you're eating every single day. Um, and with regard to, I mean, other things that I think people really ought to stop doing that will, uh, make a measurable, have a measurable positive impact on their health. Can we talk about mouthwash for a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're trying to like really f- me up with this mouthwash thing. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is something that um, the more I learn about it, the more uh, the more convinced I am that this is something we need to be talking about because nobody is right. Um, there's a lot of money that goes into the the sale of, of mouthwash. In fact, I was at a, a drugstore um, not too long ago, and I saw this big ad imploring people with type two diabetes, which is very common in this country, right? that um, periodontal disease is a big problem for, for people with type 2 diabetes, so they should buy our mouthwash, right? It's a big mouthwash brand. But mouthwash is a major problem, um, and I'll tell you why. People who frequently use mouthwash, what you're doing is you're nuking bacteria in your mouth that are required to create um, and recycle nitric oxide. And we create nitric oxide in different ways. It's one of the reasons why nose breathing is so important, because we create nitric oxide via the nitric oxide synthase enzyme in the epithelial, epithelial cells of our paranasal sinus. But oral bacteria are a, play a crucial role in this nitric oxide pathway. Um, and the, the reason why is they help to reduce nitrate from food to nitrite. So reducing it means that they're removing an, o- an oxygen molecule. And it's nitrate that enters that basically creates nitric oxide in our blood vessels. And they also recycle the nitric oxide um, that we uh, produce endogenously when we're exercising. So when so far, these are a lot of words that like, I sort of understand. But like, what's the real impact of my twice-a-day Listerine habit? So studies show, and we need more research, but what they've shown in obese patients 
is that people who use antiseptic mouthwash, so that's the keyword. So mouthwash that is germ destroying antibacterial mouthwash twice a day or more have a 50% increased risk of developing type two diabetes. Right. So weird. And doubling of risk for hypertension. So high blood pressure, but it makes sense when you realize that you're killing the bacteria that help to increase levels of nitric oxide. But what is nitric oxide doing in the body that would impact type two diabetes? Because it's not just involved in blood pressure, it's a, it's a cellular signaling molecule that's involved in insulin sensitivity, which is Weird. important. Insulin resistance is the cornerstone of type two diabetes. So it's basically affecting our body's ability to, pro- to process sugar. So if I were wearing a continuous glucose monitor and I'm using my Listerine, and then I stop, would I notice a difference in my reading? If you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor and you stop, you could potentially, yeah, you could potentially see um, if, if this bears out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because these are correlational studies. Sure. But um, if this is borne out, um, you would potentially see an improvement in your body's ability to partition sugar um, if you cut out. But here's the thing, is that one... Even just one use can increase your blood pressure. Um, and also, they've shown, and this was a randomized control trial, they've shown that using antiseptic mouthwash after a workout, so we know that exercise is as powerful as medicine for helping to normalize our blood pressure. Yep. They found that using mouthwash after exercise negates to a large degree the antihypertensive effects of exercise. So it basically negates some of one of the most important benefits of exercise hmm. using mouthwash after a workout. So the take home is don't use antiseptic mouthwash after a workout. Now the type of mouthwash that they use in that study is called chlorhexidine, which is a, um, I believe it's a prescription only, um, antiseptic mouthwash, but I would not, uh, regularly use an alcohol based mouthwash for the, for that reason, because you're, you're basically nuking the bacteria. You wouldn't take an antibiotic every day. We know that antibac- we, we sh- we've overused antibacterial hand soap. Mm. So why, who in their right mind would, would think that it makes sense to sterilize the oral cavity every single day? You're supposed to have bacteria in your mouth. Yeah, but like it, my mouth literally tastes better if I do Listerine. Because there are days where I'll just brush my teeth and I forget or I'm traveling and so I only have toothpaste. I don't have the Listerine. Yeah. And I'm like, I notice. Well, the increased risk was, f- was seen for people who use it twice or more per day. So, I mean, you could hypothetically use it, for, use it, use it once a day if you wanted. Um, but I, I personally wouldn't. I would tongue scrape, which is a, a great way to freshen up the mouth. Like with your toothbrush? Just... Yeah, you could, use, you could do that. You'd brush your tongue. How flossing. Do you, do you Well, there, there are actual like these medical tongue scraping really? uh, things that you can buy. Yeah. Because a lot of the like the the bad breath bacteria it aggregates uh-huh. on the tongue, but yeah, I mean I think like flossing regularly. I I mean it blows my mind that there are people that don't. We're getting way off topic, but like it blows my mind that there there are people that don't floss. Like all I need to do is floss once and see what I'm pulling out of my teeth, and that to me is like I floss now twice a day. Um, I also you know bl- brush. I. Um, think that you know fluoride has 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 antiseptic uh properties so i personally use a fluoride free um toothpaste i use wow. toothpaste with hydroxyapatite which um is actually fairly common in japan there are studies that suggest that it's as good at re- helping to remineralize teeth as fluoride 
Um, so I use a, a and, and hydroxyapatite is a natural component of bone and teeth. So there's no sort of antiseptic quality of, of uh, nanohydroxyapatite. Um, so I floss, I brush, and then I eat an evolutionary, evolutionarily appropriate diet. I cut out the refined grain products, which we know are easily retained by oral bacteria and are highly karyogenic. I actually talk about this in Genius Kitchen. Karyogenic? Yeah, they promote the formation of caries, which is the, the medical way of saying cavities. Got it. Um, yeah, they promote the growth of streptococcus, streptococcus mutans, which is the primary cavity-causing bacteria in the mouth. Huh. Um, but the problem with rinsing with uh, antiseptic mouthwash is you're nuking the bad bacteria, but you're also nuking the good bacteria. Right. The bacteria that help to break down nitrate in our foods, like beets and arugula, right? Beets and arugula, we know, are rich in nitrates. But if you're regularly rinsing your mouth with antiseptic mouthwash, you're, you're basically disallowing the ability of your food to have a, neuro, a, a cardioprotective effect, right? Mm. Like you could be eating all the beets and arugula you want, but if you're destroying the bacteria in your mouth that are required to reduce the nitrate that those foods contain to nitrite, you're, you're basically like, A, you're, you're wasting your money and you're wasting your effort because we rely on oral bacteria to, um, to derive maximum benefit from those foods. Right. All right. Super interesting. Now let's get into what are the things that we should be adding. I like your take on meat. Um, I have now, I've really tried to go plant forward. So um, we have, there's a guy here on the team who has a really big percentage gap between his chronological age and his biological age. So um, I was like, what do you do? And he had been vegan for years. So I was like, all right, let's do this. And he gave me this concoction to make in the morning. It's largely fruit though. And I was like, there's no way you're going to die. Like when I first saw him eating it, I was like, bro, like that, there's no way that's good for you. And his body composition, of course, he's very, very skinny. He has a hard time putting on weight. So I was like, is he like skinny fat? And, you know, so anyway, let me try this. Wearing my continuous glucose monitor, I eat this thing. Now, if you eat it slowly, you go up to about 120 or I go up to about 120 and you stay. That's where he goes as well, 120 and he stays. If I eat it fast, I'll go all the way up to 150, uh, which for me, that's like sort of red light high. It's pretty high. Um, yeah. So that is questionable, but... But I've, my body composition did not go up. So I don't know if it's just depressing my calories and the overall caloric intake on the smoothie isn't very high. I don't know. But, um, but I don't feel great. Hmm. And so I notice on days where I have it, I'm just, meh. I don't know. I, it, it's not traumatic. It's not bad. It's not brain fog. It's nothing. If you were going to give like a, a sense of what's the qualia of your day, I would just say I'm off a little bit. Huh. Um, I wouldn't be able to pinpoint it to it's not brain fog, it's not lack of energy. I don't know, just don't feel normal. Now, if I eat meat, I feel like a million bucks. I'm ready to rock. So, Have you reverted your position then? Like, are you, Have you gone back to like a more... Yeah. Inclusive? Oh, if I, if I immediately... I do both, but there might be three or four days where I'll go and I won't have the smoothie. So on those days, I would say I feel normal because I always feel good because my diet's clean just year-round. Um, and... When I have the smoothie, I feel a little bit off, but it's not catastrophic by any means. Um, and for body composition reasons, sometimes I'll do the shake just because it does seem to help me stay tight, even though it's fruit, which I still can't wrap my head around how that's true. Uh, but it is. Certainly makes me feel fuller from a muscular standpoint. 
Um, but yeah. So anyway, I keep trying to go plant forward. I'm never loving the way that I feel. There's a lot of dogma around like either moral reasons for needing to go plant forward. But I like the way that you had a take on meat in the book. I'd love for you to go into that. Why meat? Let's get into the weeds a little bit on amino acids. Yeah. 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 I, there's this, you know, I mean, we talked about this push towards plant-based eating. And I think that it's it's great to include plants, right? I mean, it's we see that fruit and vegetable consumption is associated with reduced inflammation, with, with longevity, all these, all these really positive things, right? Observationally, when we look at people's health and their meat consumption habits, people who consume more meat, just because meat has been demonized for so many decades at this point, people who consume more meat, and especially processed meat, they tend to have worse health outcomes. But that's because people who eat more meat tend to be more sedentary, they tend to smoke more. People who are vegan um, tend to be more health conscious, right? They tend to, um, or, or people that have plant-heavy diets, right? People who are, here's a good example of, of healthy user bias, right? Like, if you were to look observationally at the population level at all the people in the, in the U.S. who eat quinoa, and then you were to sort of um, rank them in terms of how much quinoa they're eating, right? I guarantee you, you'd see that people who eat quinoa often have great health outcomes, right? Is it because of the quinoa or is it in spite of the quinoa, right? That's where we have to recognize. Because when you start eating quinoa, you're shopping at Air One. There you go. And, yeah. The fact that you know how to pronounce quinoa <laughs> is a good sign, right? That's a good sign, which most people wouldn't know how to pronounce quinoa, right? Especially if they're not health food shoppers mm. or, if they're, or, or health conscious um, for that matter. And so that's the, that's the limitation with, I think, epidemiology when it comes to teasing out the value or the health effect that meat um, can have, right? But when you look at what meat is, I mean, it's a pristine source of protein. It's the highest quality, highest biological, biological value source of protein to be found in nature, right? We can look at the digestible, indispensable amino acid score, which is, you know, the latest and greatest way of measuring protein digestibility. And we see that meat is consistently at the top. I mean, soy comes close, uh, but, you know, eggs, whey protein, grass-fed beef, chicken, always at the top. Um, the proportion of essential amino acids is phenomenal, right? Like you get a very high proportion of the nine essential amino acids, very uh, concentrated in branched chain amino acids, which we know are crucially important for halting muscle protein breakdown and stimulating muscle protein synthesis. We know that high protein foods, meat in particular, also tend to contain a lot of really important micronutrients that, that are typically under-consumed today in their most bioavailable form. I'll add. So, you know, when you're getting micronutrients, whether it's B12 or iron or zinc from an animal sourced food, those micronutrients are plug and play to your body, right? They don't have to undergo complex biochemical transformation that vary in, in the, in their efficacy from person to person, right? Like plant-based uh, omega-3s, for example, um, alpha linolenic acid, very constrained in terms of our ability to generate the biologically relevant um, omega-3 fats, eicosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, DHA fat, um, from the plant-based form, right? Women are about 10 times better at it than men. Um, women, I think about 10% of the plant-based omega-3s that they, that they ingest will get converted to DHA fat. It's thought that women have a higher uh, ability to do this because of childbearing, right? But men, um, less than 1% of the, 
of the plant-based omega-3s that we ingest actually get get converted to DHA fat. So that's a miserable, I mean, statistic right there. Whereas the DHA fat that you ingest from wild salmon or from omega-3 enriched eggs, plug and play for the human body. And this is true for all of the, I mean, many, many of the micronutrients that you see in, in, in animal products. And they're without anti-nutrients that um, can potentially hinder their absorption. So I'm a big advocate of the consumption of meat. I think it's, I think it's really important. And also, I'll add that there's this big issue of food access and food distribution in this country, right? You can go into any, almost any supermarket in this country and buy a pack of ground beef, right? And to me, that is going to be a much healthier dinner than boxed mac and cheese, right? Mm-hmm. You can go into any gas station almost and find canned tuna, right? Which is going to be a pristine source of protein, great source of um, minerals like selenium and such. Um, and so I think we, we have to really um, be careful not to demonize these kinds, of, these kinds of foods. Now, I'm not saying everybody should go out and become carnivores, right? That's not my approach. But uh, I think we do need to get back to a, some sort of semblance of common sense when it comes to the kinds of foods that we know that humans have been eating since we've been human. Yeah, it's interesting watching some of the nature shows and seeing like um, there are like take the pelican. A pelican will try to eat a cat. It's not like, you know, we have this image of like, oh, uh, monkeys only eat, you know, shoots and leaves. No, no, no. If they can get a hold of something, they will eat it. Nature's and, wild. Yeah, nature's wild. Um, so, yeah, I think it's pretty clear from an evolutionary standpoint that humans are omnivores. Um, and I like the idea of eat what you need to build. And so if you need to build muscle and, you know, brain tissue and all that, well, then you're going to eat the things that are actually that versus eating a plant, which has those, you know, amino acids for the most part, but not quite in the most available form. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah. Also, I mean, low fat vegetarian diets are associated with, with reduced testosterone. Um, it's not like plants don't have a potential downside, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to talk about the fact that plants today grown, especially in the industrial plant agriculture system, harbor heavy metals. Um, they are vehicles for herbicides and pesticides, which, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that organic is better than conventional. I think there's debate, a healthy debate on that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's about ultimately, um, a balance, a balance of both. But, um, but protein, I think, is important. It's highly satiating. It assuages our hunger, I think, in a really powerful way, right, which fat and carbs can't do. Um, again, the, the, the fact that high-protein foods contain uh, are a repository of, of other micronutrients, which we know are, are beneficial, um, I, think it's, I think it's really important. And there's this fear now, I think, around protein and longevity and we know that people who are people over sixty-five who eat higher levels of protein have increased longevity, reduced risk of cancer, um, and uh, and so yeah, I take a I take a pretty firm stance on that. Eggs, for example, eggs are a, another food that you can go anywhere in this country, right? Food deserts, you'll be able to find eggs, right? They're not going to be the most pristine pasture-raised eggs that you and I might find in our local Whole Foods, for example, but they're still a, a health food. They're still a cognitive multivitamin, right? Egg yolks are incredible, so. Um, so yeah, I'm really against the sort of fear mongering around around. This Is there product. such a thing as too many eggs? I ate a lot of eggs. Yeah, a lot. There's a 
eggs, dietary cholesterol we now know has very little long-term effect on, on serum cholesterol. Mm -hmm. There might be uh, an acute effect um, because when you eat more cholesterol, when you, when you, through your diet, ingest more cholesterol, your liver is going to create less of it. When you ingest less, your liver is going to create more. So the body wants homeostasis, mm -hmm. right? The issue is that there's a bit of a lag time. So if you, uh, from one day to the next, start eating more cholesterol, um, dietary cholesterol, if you're on a low cholesterol diet and then you start eating more cholesterol, you may perhaps see an increase in your uh, blood lipids, but that'll normalize over time. Um, the, the key sort of needle mover on cholesterol tends to be saturated, certain saturated fatty acids. Um, and we talked to sort of about this, but, um, but I, you know, with foods like butter, coconut oil, they'll raise your, your LDL cholesterol. And there's really no nutritional value to, I think like eating an excess of, of isolated fats, right? You're going to, when you, when you adopt a diet that contains animal products like red meat, you're going to, you're going to have a cholesterol level that's lower than, I mean, that's, I'm sorry, higher than that of a of a vegan perhaps, mm -hmm. but I think that there's benefit to, um, there's, there are other, other benefits to be had from consuming these foods, right? The benefits outweigh the risks. The fact that meat can help you stay robust and healthy. It can op help optimize your testosterone, your, your, your hormones, your testosterone. Um, the fact that it provides all of these other micronutrients that help your body carry out all of its many sort of faculties, um, I think is, is, non-trivial it's a non-trivial benefit got to support the science but also i think it's important to also try to live in a way that is going to minimize your risk mm. one of the things you talked about in the book that it's been on my radar for a while but i know very little about it is environmental toxins mm. um what are some of the big things that people should be avoiding what are the ones that are just fucking ever present so environmental toxins, I talk about this quite a bit in the book. And unfortunately, I don't really have a strong sense of how they would have related to what my mom developed. Um, but certainly there are certain cancers in the body that are sensitive to the way our hormones fluctuate. Uh, breast cancer, prostate cancer would be the two primary examples. Um, but generally speaking, we're inundated with industrial pollutants, whether it's the fine particulate matter in the air that we breathe. If we live in, you know, a polluted city, many, many Americans live in, you know, in, in polluted areas. Do air filters work? Air purifiers can work. HEPA filters, a HEPA vacuum, um, and a HEPA air filter is one of the best ways of removing, um, fine particles from the air. PM 2.5 is essentially what it's called. It's the most dangerous. What's PM 2.5? It's basically the, uh, the measurement of the particles. So there's PM is 10. PM size? Yeah. Okay. It so it's particulate not a matter 2.5. I believe it. it's nanometers. Okay. So um, the smaller, the more dangerous, the smaller, the more dangerous. Which is why vaping is bad. Vaping's not good for you. Although, but is that part of what the beef is? Is that it's such a fine particle size? That's not why vaping is bad. Vaping is bad. I think because of the vitamin E acetate that's now in these, in these, you know, vaping solutions that people are inhaling and it's, it's causing illness. Uh, but fine particulate matter generally is like, magnetite and iron and and actual metals that we inhale through the air that are created in the burning of coal mm. in you know vehicle uh exhaust um sloughed off from any number of industrial processes and it's like literally metal um uh, for example magnetite they've been able to identify 
uh, magnetite in the brains in Mexico City of toddlers, essentially, because these particles are so small, they're able to pierce the, they enter circulation easily, and they pierce the blood-brain barrier, and they're able to actually accumulate in the hippocampus, where they cause Whoa. inflammation. They've been shown to um, cause the aggregate of plaques that are associated with Alzheimer's disease, but in young people. Amyloid beta is one of the primary proteins that's involved in the, in the, um, in Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. It's basically, it's the backbone of the plaque that characterizes the disease. And amyloid beta is not necessarily bad thing. It's bad when it, you know, creates these plaques that gunk up the brain. But I think the, the, the current sort of understanding of what this protein is meant to do in the brain, it's sort of there to actually initially protect it against inflammatory insults. How's it protecting it? So is it uh, like finding a particle or a virus and like wrapping it like one, like a pearl does a grain of sand? Is it yeah, something like that's that? A very, that's a very good analogy. Yeah, it basically, it basically encapsulates it. And the, the research that they're doing on this is coming, I think, predominantly out of Harvard, um, they're showing this with the herpes virus that people that have herpes or people with Alzheimer's generally, they can find herpes in the brain. Mm. Um, and that it se- amyloid seems to basically like protect the brain. It's initially trying to protect the brain from this virus. And so mm. it wraps it up and it causes the proteins to cross link and, and aggregate and misfold and uh, form these plaques. So the same thing conceivably That's can happen with. Um, and it, se- it seems to be happening with fine particulate matter. And there is an interesting relationship between exposure to air pollution and one's risk for developing uh, Alzheimer's disease. And though Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, it's not the only form of dementia. And my mom lived throughout her life in New York City, which is, you know, now I think the air is a bit cleaner, but um, it's a city that for many, many, many years has had uh, problems with, with air pollution. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that's a major one. I mean, clean air. And there are a few things that you can do to, to pr- protect yourself against this. I think, you know, getting a good air filter, especially in your um, personal breathing space. Uh, there, was a, there was a great book. I'm forgetting. Oh, Dr. Wolverton. I think it's, his first name was Bill. Bill Wolverton. He was a NASA research scientist. And he looked at plants. And um, he analyzed the rate at which plants are able to sort of clean the air. And he did this because you could essentially put a plant on board of a space shuttle and provide clean air to, you know, to the astronauts. And so there's they a, actually did that. He I don't know if they actually went through with it. They may be. Um, but that's what he was studying hmm. with his time at NASA. And since then, he's written a book. I believe the book is called How to Have Clean Air or How to Clean Your Air or something like that. Um, or How to Plant Fresh Air or Grow Fresh Air. Something like that. It's a really cool book. I cite it in, in mine. And he basically um, lists out all the plants in ascending order. And I have the top 10 in my book, Genius Foods, or The Genius Life. Um, plants that are basically able to clean the air for you, which is great. They're able to reduce uh, levels of formaldehyde, which leaches out into the air from you know wood furniture and carpets and couches and things like that. Um, Another big problem for people, well, I would say plastic-related compounds are some of the most common um, everywhere compounds that, uh, that we're just inundated with on a day-to-day basis, and they do affect the way that our horm- hormones work. Um, compounds like phthalates and bisphenol A are what are called xenoestrogens. They, Is bisphenol A BPA? BPA, Got it. yes. Um, Although now consumers are starting to get wise to the potential dangers of BPA. And so you'll see a lot of products that are BPA free, but that doesn't mean that they're free of chemically similar compounds like BPS and BPF. 
So essentially, it's created this chemical game of whack-a-mole where as soon as consumers become aware of a compound, you know, industry is very quick to pivot mm. and then use, actually, they're able to sort of hijack the fears of the consumer to then make health claims about their products. Like right. this product no BPA. Is no BPA. Yeah. But, um, but a lot of them... Do you have, avoid plastic like at every conceivable turn? Um, I try to without driving myself too crazy. So if I'm traveling and I don't, I can't find water in a glass bottle, then yeah, I will drink from plastic, even though I know it's not ideal. Because the reality is you can't escape these compounds. So mm -hmm. trying to is a completely futile effort. So by you not drinking, you know, avoiding drinking water when you're thirsty because it may come in a plastic bottle doesn't make a lot of sense because we're just inundated with these compounds. The best mm -hmm. that we can do is to minimize our exposure to them and to help our bodies to facilitate the purging of toxins that we have already accumulated. So how do we do that? So when it comes to detoxing, a lot of people are spending money on overpriced teas and supplements and things like that. But the reality is, uh, what I, I like to talk about the three P's of detoxing. It's peeing, pooping, and perspiring. <laughs> and this is literally, I mean, crucially important because whether it's heavy metals or phthalates or parabens or BPA or... Uh, PFAS chemicals, which basically include, um, it's an umbrella category for the chemicals that are sometimes used to create Teflon pans or nonstick pans, mm. uh, which are also incidentally found in dental tape. So if you're using dental tape, not dental floss, you want to switch over. Dental tape? I yeah. I've heard of dental tape. Like it's the glide dental, fl dental uh, floss okay. that's like. It's actually called dental tape. It says it right on dental it. Dental tape, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so no dental tape, all dental floss. All dental floss. It's going to be better at cleaning your teeth and you're not using gonna... Teflon, essentially. Teflon. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, and they've shown that that can actually enter circulation. Huh. Um, you want to be very careful with uh, your... Do you cook with Teflon? What do you cook with? I don't know. I use a cast iron pan. I use stainless steel. It doesn't stick? Uh, it... Not if you, if you cook with them the right way. What about ceramic? Ceramic can be good. Do they make ceramic uh, frying pans? They do make ceramic frying pans. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. You just want to be careful with the I'm coated. I'm the most Teflon ever. You I don't use dental tape, yeah. but I cook in Teflon pans nonstop. There, there is a product, and I have uh, no affiliation with them whatsoever, but they're called Green Pan. And I've discovered them on my own, and I've, I've, I've purchased you know, one or two of their pans with, you know, with my own money. Um, they claim to not have any of these, of these chemicals in them. Um, and I think that, the, that, they, that they claim that they're free of all related compounds as well. So uh, I think the jury is still out. But it may be a better option. I don't know. Um, but generally, yeah, you want to you want to support your body's own detox, detox, detoxification, and you can do that by eating in a way that's going to support digestive health. You know, consuming lots of uh, vegetables, fiber in general, but especially cruciferous vegetables. I'm a big fan of because of their ability to stoke our body's own detox pathways. Um, and I heard you talking about one of your favorite is baby uh, broccoli sprouts. Broccoli sprouts. I've never even heard of broccoli sprouts. Yeah, baby broccoli. Um, I've heard of broccolini, but this is different. Broccolini, yeah. So you've got baby broccoli at the sort of, those are the infants. And then you've got broccolini and then you've got full adult grown broccoli. I think that's pretty much how it goes. Don't, don't quote me, but, but broccoli sprouts are baby. It's, you know, it's like three or four day old broccoli mm. and you can just buy broccoli seeds and you can, what is it own. high in that makes it so useful? So broccoli sprouts are very high in a compound called sulforaphane. Um, in fact, one 
pound of broccoli sprouts or the equivalent of 100 pounds of broccoli in terms of their capacity to produce this compound. And this is useful in the detoxification? Yeah. So it basically, it's a very effective um, upregulator of a gene pathway in our body is called the NRF2 pathway, which is a detoxification pathway. It increases levels of glutathione in the body, which is our body's master antioxidant and detoxifier. Um, when something is detoxifying, because whenever I hear people talk about detoxifying, they sound crazy. Yeah. So what is actually happening in detoxification? Well, for one, it's you're basically telling your liver to create more glutathione. You're, Which does what? So if amyloid plaques go into the brain, surround a virus or a particle, I get that. Yeah. I understand how that works. You can't detox viruses. You can't detox amyloid. But you can detox certain of these compounds that are fat-soluble. What are they and, doing? Well, the liver, does, the liver makes them water-soluble. Okay. So they can be more easily excreted and the liver. But what are they doing? Are they running around grabbing things? Like what are they, what are they removing from the body? Like this poor kid, Mexico city who's breathing in metals. It's crossing the blood brain barrier. The only way to lock that up or can that be detoxified? I know people get heavy metal poisoning, like, and then they supposedly detoxify. Like what, yeah. are they, what is actually happening at a cellular level? They can be detoxified. So, for, so something is going and so grabbing certain, the metal. Certain heavy metals can be chelated by your body. Chelated um, is that wrapping procedure? It's when you basically wrap a heavy metal and you excrete it. Okay, and you're wrapping it in glutathione? Uh, you can wrap it in glutathione. They could be disarmed by selenoproteins, which are selenium-based enzymes in the brain. This happens with mercury. Um, so there's for each compound, there's sort of like a different way in which they're detoxed. Mm -hmm. Some of some compounds are not as easily excreted through our poop and our pee, and we have to sweat them out, like cadmium. Cadmium is a good example of that. Um, so it's different for every compound and I can't, you know, I don't pretend to know the detox route for every, but the liver one, but is sending out the things, yeah. the things you like how technical that is. Yes. It's sending out the things that are going to go and grab all these. And it, it somehow takes it to, if it's cadmium, it's taking it to sweat. If it's something else, it's pee. If it's something else, it's poop. Like that's the, yeah. Idea. I mean, you have, so your liver has two detox phases. There's phase one detox and phase two. And in the first phase, I believe it's making these compounds water soluble. That's so that they can be more easily excreted. It's making the toxins water soluble. Yeah. Somehow. Yes. Um, and then, yeah, they can be excreted by the kidneys in our pee or, you know, they get excreted into our bile, which is another reason why, you know, I think that when my mom had these, this bilirubin, this bile back up, uh, into her circulation, it was essentially causing a buildup of toxins because um, that's one major route of exit for these for these toxic chemicals. And that's why eating fiber is so important because it basically traps them in your poop. And this also actually happens, interestingly, with cholesterol. Um, so a lot of people struggle with... Uh, I mean, we could debate um, high cholesterol versus low cholesterol and, and what that really means from the standpoint of health. But I think if you have very high cholesterol, you know, there's probably, it's probably a marker that something is not going right in the body. Give me what, what do you consider high? Like to talk about cholesterol intelligently, don't you have to start talking particle size and fluffiness and all yeah. that stuff? Yeah. So I talked about that quite a bit in um, Genius Foods. And I think that your normal calculated LDL that you get on a, on a blood lab, it's not super um, telling when it comes to your overall health, I think, uh, and I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't, you know, diagnose, uh, you know, 
or, or, or talk about an individual's, you know, risk for heart disease or anything like that. But yes, I think the, the particle number, generally speaking, gives you a better sense of the recycling machinery in the body and how effectively your liver is, is recycling lipids like LDL cholesterol, which if allowed to back up in the blood and linger in the blood for too long, it's more prone to oxidation. It's more prone to becoming a small and dense particle that can more easily uh, get stuck to the endothelium which is the lining of your blood vessels and then form what ultimately becomes a foam cell. And that's the beginning of an, you know, atherogenic plaque. Uh, but cholesterol is actually used to create bile acids, which is how we digest and assimilate fats through the digestive tract. And your liver uses cholesterol that it sucks out from circulation to create these bile acids. And then it gets squirted essentially by your gallbladder into your GI tract. And when you consume certain types of fiber, um, I've actually become interested in, in psyllium husk because psyllium husk has been shown to actually do this. It's able to sequester cholesterol so they can't be reabsorbed back in um, to circulation at the lower end of the small intestine. And that's the exact same mechanism by which fiber can help us better excrete environmental toxins. I think it's also one of the reasons because why. Because the cholesterol grabs it and then the fiber grabs the cholesterol? Because the fiber just grabs the bile the bile acids, which contain these toxins. So it, it, it basically disallows for the reabsorption of toxins mm. that are contained in the bile. Mm. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why dietary fiber consumption is associated with reduced risk for certain cancers. So breast cancer is one of them. Um, eating more vegetables allows because you- the toxin is not reabsorbed into the body. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So mm. yeah. just when I was going to give up all vegetables and I'm not joking, and go carnivore, dude, I'm a lazy carnivore. So I don't go out of my way to avoid things. So I'll have stuff like avocado. Um, I'll have, if I'm at a restaurant and there's some delicious broccoli, I'll have that cause I dig broccoli or Brussels sprouts. I'll have that. But I, I easily will go a week, 10 days without any vegetable intake whatsoever. That's not quite true. Almost every day I have unsweetened coconut. That's true. I have pecans almost every day. So I yeah, get that, but it's not really not a fully vegetable. Carnivore. Yeah. Um, so not fully carnivore. Like I said, it's lazy. But I'll say that, I don't know, 80% of my calories come from red meat just to really freak people out. Yeah. Um, I, I eat a lot of red meat too, but I also eat a lot of vegetables. I think that's yeah, where I... I'm like, this is the one thing like normally when people are like, oh, there's so much conflicting information. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like sift through it. You'll find that people say like a lot of the same things. But this one, like people go back and forth very convincingly, I might add, from the camp of no, no, no vegetables. Hey, they're stuck. Their only defense mechanism is to develop these toxins and eating them. You're eating the toxins. And that's why cultures have done things like. Um, you know, take the husk off or the skin or make sure that the seeds are absent or soak things or, you know, pressure cook, whatever the hell the answer is to detoxify the stuff. Yeah. I think um, that there's, there's definitely some truth in there, but sulforaphane, which is what we were talking about before is one of those chemicals. It's an in- insect antifeedant that's there literally to protect this, the plant against pr- predation by fungus, by critters and things like that. In fact, sulforaphane is only created when you chew the raw plant, because it, it actually doesn't exist endogenously in the plant. It's created via the enzymatic conversion of a compound in the plant cell in a certain cell compartment called uh, glucoraphanin. It's a glucosinolate compound and an enzyme, which is found in another compartment in the cell called myrosinase. So only when you chew the raw plant, 
which is what a critter would do, essentially, mm. do these two compounds get to combine in your mouth and in your digestive tract to create sulforaphane, which is this mildly toxic compound that uh, in us, because we're so robust com- in comparison to a fungus, right, uh, or, a, or an insect for that matter, um, it actually works to stimulate um, detox pathways in our body because it, it is a mild toxin. So, How does that stimulate detox if it's a mild toxin? I get uh, a hermetic response where a little bit of bad is good, but how is it actually detoxing? Well, because it it's basically, it's that hormetic response. It's a xenohormetic compound that, meaning it's a compound from outside that we ingest that is not, you know, it's not uh, a nutrient. It's not a macronutrient or a micronutrient. It's a plant you know, insecticide essentially that do you, when, when you talk hormetic response, so this is one of those where like we'll hit a point where it goes into black box territory for me, where I can give you the, it's hormetic. The body like responds to a mild stressor by getting stronger, but I don't actually know what the fuck is happening. Yeah. Do you know what is happening in a hormetic response? Is it vary depending on what the thing is or are there like your breakdown of rapamycin and mTOR and all that? Like I can follow the train of logic but with this, yeah. how does something that releases a toxin, how does that become a detox pathway? I think because our bodies overcompensate. I think because our by bodies... By what? By, by upregulating the NRF2 pathway, creating detox compounds like glutathione. Um, that snatch us up, make it water-soluble, or bind it so that we can urinate. Yeah. It basically creates more glutathione than would be needed to disarm this compound. And that has an overall protective, you know, effect on the body. Right. So sulforaphane has been shown to, to boost glutathione in the brain, um, which is amazing. Glutathione, uh, a, a decrement of glutathione is associated with depression, dementia, and things like that. Um, and then also I think that, and this is sort of a, a the new frontier for science, um, it probably is also having a hormetic effect on the microbiota, like the bacteria that live in our large intestine. And this is sort of, you know, unexplored, relatively unexplored territory, but, uh, you know, certain compounds like polyphenols, which also act as hormetic stressors, you know, xenohormesis, um, are actually not all that bioavailable, uh, to us. Like their absorption in through the digestive tract into circulation is actually pretty low, and yet the consumption of foods with polyphenols is related to all kinds of good things in terms of your health. So it's probably not, you know, a hundred percent the case that these compounds are being absorbed and, you know, we're even detoxing them, but it's probably via their, you know, consumption by, you know, gut bacteria that's releasing all these metabolites mm-hmm. that then get released into circulation. So there's all these different potential, um, mechanisms, but, uh, but that's what I think where I'm kind of at odds with people that are on the carnivore diet because it's like, you know, when you heat meat for one, you're creating all kinds of toxic compounds. And, you know, I think in isolation... Is that true if you're not charring it? You're saying no matter what heat... Um, no, I mean, charring is probably the worst, but I would be a very poor uh, excuse for a carnivore because I like to cook my meat on a, on a barbecue occasionally. Um, and so inevitably you're going to be creating heterocyclic amines. You're going to be creating AGEs, you know, which is the Maillard reaction, which is why meat browns, um, and, and those compounds and others, you know, those are not necessarily good for you. I think the benefits of eating meat outweigh any potential negatives that you get from those compounds, especially when 
you know, you eat the meat in the context of a diet that includes vegetables and fiber and things like that. So, um, so I think it's important to have both. Yeah, that, oh man, that debate goes back and forth and I find it so, if I'm really honest, it's a convenience thing. So because I find it so convenient to not have to prep vegetables, um, and I so enjoy the way I feel when I'm eating red meat, um, that I go in on it pretty hard. Yeah, I go on, go in on it pretty hard. I would say, um, I mean, I do think that the, that dietary fiber is important, uh, you know, and it's like, in a way you're kind of grasping at straws when it comes to nutrition, because you have the, like the gold standard of, of research that can prove cause and effect is a randomized control trial. And we're never going to have long-term large population RCTs in humans that, uh, that can prove the benefits of one diet over another, especially these niche diets like carnivore diets versus a more omnivorous paleo diet. Um, and so I think on the one hand you want to kind of like hedge your bets, but on the other, uh, you know, I think that there's enough information where we can say that certain plant compounds are in fact very good for us. And, um, and I also think in terms of like just your overall happiness quotient and dietary diversity, uh, you know, and the microbiome, the microbiota, I think it's important to include these, you know, these kinds of foods. One thing you talk about in the book though, is that just diversity of diet is not necessarily that important in that there's a few things that if you go and you buy them and just cycle around on these things that you're probably better off. Yeah. What are those things? What are the like five or 10 things that we should be buying and eating? Um, yeah, so that's a good, I'm glad you brought that up. So Darius Mozafarian, he's a nutrition researcher. He's done a study and I, I cite it in the book where, um, you know, most people say that, you know, they, they parrot the old adage of eating everything in moderation. But when you look at a person's diet, um, people that tend to have more varied diets tend to be including more confectionery products, sugar, sweetened beverages and things like that. So what I found is that the healthiest people tend to buy a narrower, narrower range of foods and just eat the same foods on loop. Mm. And so I try to highlight books that are books, uh, foods that have the highest capacity for nutrient density that are going to basically give your body what it needs. Cause when you look around statistically, most people aren't going to be nutrient deficient in at least one essential nutrient, whether it's a vitamin or mineral, uh, or, you know, essential fatty acid or the like, um, 90% of people actually are, are deficient in at least one essential nutrient. And so for me, when I'm going to the supermarket, I'm really making an effort to shop around the perimeter. Um, and this is probably advice that you've had on your, on your show many times. It's not uh, rocket science, but I think it's important to reiterate that most supermarkets are designed the same way, that the fresh perishable food is found around the perimeter and it's the aisles where the ultra processed foods lie in wait. And those ultra processed foods, they're tempting, but we now overconsume them. About 60% of the calories that your average person consumes comes from these kinds of foods. And for all the variety that the modern supermarket might present you the illusion of, most of the calories that we're consuming are coming from just three plants, wheat, corn, and rice, pulverized and ground into a dust and uh, devoid of essential nutrients. In fact, they often have to be added back in in their synthetic form. That's why if you look at most commercial breads or wheat snacks, they're all fortified with niacin, with folic acid, with all these, because most people are nutrient deficient. Um, and that's because the, the, the standard American diet basically encourages that, the, you know, those nutrient deficiencies. So I advocate for you know, grass-fed beef, wild salmon, dark leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables, um, nuts, seeds, berries, things like that. Uh, but in this book, I think where I 
where I depart from genius foods is I talk a lot about the value of dietary protein. I think um, dietary protein is crucially important, uh, especially for a population that is by and large um, overweight. I think protein is a, is a crucial thing to try to prioritize at every meal. Uh, it's not only the most satiating of the macronutrients. You think more than fat? I think more than fat, for sure. In fact, there's uh, a hypothesis. It's called the pl- protein leverage hypothesis that our hunger mechanisms are basically dictated by our requirement for amino acids. So when you're able, when you eat the protein that your body requires, it basically turns off your hunger mechanisms. And people who undereat protein tend to eat more carbs and fat. Not only that, but uh, protein is thermogenically favorable. In fact, um, you burn. What do you mean by that? Well, fat has nine calories per gram. Yep. Protein and carbs have four calories per gram, but actually protein has three calories per gram when you consider that about a third of um, the calories that uh, you consume in the form of protein are burned off via digestion. It's the thermic effect of feeding, and protein has the highest thermic um, effect. I have literally never heard of that. How's that possible? Yeah, it's basically three calories per gram. So you're saying the energy that it takes me to run the cycle of digesting the food? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so it's satiating. So, sorry, as a percentage of the calories that it has, it is harder for me, essentially, to digest protein. It takes more energy. I don't yeah. want to use the wrong words here. Yes. So, because obviously, um, that's interesting. So, round numbers, you're saying it takes a calorie to burn protein. Yeah. How many calories does it take to burn fat? Uh, I be, I believe it's about five to 10%. So like a fraction of a calorie. Wow. So it's 25% to yeah. burn protein. What about carbs? It's about 30. Yeah. 20 to 30% carbs, similar to fat. It's about five to 10%. Whoa. Very low. Yeah. Interesting. Carbs are easily assimilated. Um, cause glucose is important for survival. So, uh-huh. I mean, basically when you consume a complex carbohydrate, the carbs are cleaved. Um, the it's been there. A complex carb carbohydrate is basically a long chain of glucose, um, that are essentially broken down. I mean, even as you begin chewing a starch, the amylase enzyme in your saliva begins to break down the carbohydrate mm. and fat has a very low thermic effect, um, as well, but protein, yeah, about 30%. So I had no idea. Yeah. It's also, um, as I mentioned, it's satiating, uh, it fills you up. And it's crucial for maintaining and building muscle mass, which, you know, we know is important. Um, And I think people tend to, you know, underappreciate protein. But if you think about it, it's rare that you tend to, it's rare that you'll, that you'll overeat chicken breast or um, a piece of fish. That doesn't happen with protein. It happens with hyper palatable processed foods. It happens with, you know, a baked potato that you throw butter on top of. Like it's very, those are very easy foods to overconsume. Americans by and large are not in a good state of health, right? Nine in 10 adults today have some component of metabolic illness, which is a really sad statistic, but it's true. Nine in 10 now, adults. Do you think that you can be profoundly overweight and still be healthy? I think that you can be more healthy or less healthy at a given weight, okay. but it's, it's without controversy, better to not be obese. And, okay. today, and why, why would you say that's without controversy? Because I would say certainly in Instagram circles, that's going to be very, like people are going to push back on that. I can already feel them typing in the comments as yeah. we speak. Um, so in what way is that incontrovertible? Well, obesity is not healthy. Um, it's a disease. 
And I think today we have a number of different sort of voices that are coming at us that are trying to obfuscate the reality of the fact that obesity is a disease. Now, it is associated with the onset or worsening of non-communicable chronic conditions like type 2 diabetes. Um, your risk for developing type 2 diabetes is dramatically higher if, if you're obese. Cardiovascular disease, it's not good for your joints. Um, it's an inflammatory condition. Um, neurodegenerative disease. So it's, it's by and large not healthy. That being said, I think it's a positive thing that we're seeing people at different stages on their fitness journey today. Um, but to point to somebody who is obese and uh, try to put a spin on it as if that's an aspirational state to be, mm. I completely disagree with that. And I would say that all of the you know, most credentialed medical experts um, would also corroborate that. Um, that being said, beauty is subjective, right? So to conflate health and beauty, I don't think is, is smart. I think mm. that we should all practice self-love. There shouldn't be any shame attached uh, to obesity. We should, we should be encouraging. Yeah. We should be encouraging people, um, to, you know, to, to shift their body at, at any stage to a more healthy state. And it's also true. I should add that you can't really tell much about a person based on how they look from the outside. And you can also be unhealthy and underweight, which mm -hmm. is a, which is a major medical medical problem. But today, for the first time in human history, we have more overweight people walking the earth than underweight. And, and by and large, people are being taken down by these kinds of diseases of civilization, diseases that are, that are essentially driven by being undernourished and overfed. And I think at the foundation of this, this epidemic, where by the year 2030, one in two people are going to be not just overweight, but obese, right, are ultra-processed ultra food products that, by and large, we overconsume today. Your average American today derives 60% of their calories from ultra-processed foods. These are the foods that line our supermarket aisles. So just to make it really simple for the audience, you know, our supermarkets tend to be designed the same way. It's the, the perishable fresh food that tend to be around the perimeter. The aisles have all the shelf-stable convenience foods that are minimally satiating, highly calorically dense, and hyper-palatable. So those three factors make those kinds of foods, particularly when they're all you have access to, a recipe for disaster. And so it's, it's driving disease, I think, in a, in a major way. And when it comes to the, food, the kinds of things that people should, be, should, should learn how to identify and thus avoid, I think we have to all be more mindful of the added sugar epidemic. Added sugar is insidious today. It's in everything. It's in, it's in sauces. It's in coffee beverages, right? We go to coffee chains for a cup of coffee. We end up drinking uh. dessert. Your average person today is consuming 77 grams of added sugar every single day. So just to visualize Define that. added sugar. So this is sugar for which we have no biological necessity, no biological need. It's the sugar that food manufacturers are pumping into these ultra-processed food products. Usually, but is there some amount of sugar in that product that's not considered added sugar? Or every gram of sugar in that is added sugar? Yeah, if you were to look at the nutrition facts label, label of an apple, it would say zero grams of added sugar. But an apple, a Honeycrisp apple, has about 24 grams of, of, of sugar in it. It's not added. Right. But the sugar in an apple, for example, is bound to the food matrix, which includes fiber. It includes polyphenols, um, lots of water. So it's, it's highly self-limiting. And that's not the case with these ultra-processed food products. We don't tire of eating them. There was a seminal study published in 2018 funded by the NIH that showed us when you give adults access to an ultra-processed food diet and, and, you, and you tell them to basically eat until you're full, eat until you're satisfied, they end up eating 
to a calorie surplus of about 500 additional calories. Mm. And that, I think, goes back to the fact that these foods are minimally satiating. And added sugar in particular, we don't tire of eating it. We have no... Let's get into why sugar is so bad. So, you know, we started this by saying that one, I want to reinforce many people that I love. I grew up in a morbidly obese family. So when I say that I don't pass judgment on them, love them to death, um, but want to see them live as long as possible, I'd love to know if anybody's ever done a study of like, um, what age do we see what BMI? Because I'm guessing that as you get older, the BMI just starts dropping, 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 dropping until you basically you don't see obese 90-year-olds, right? Yeah, that's so true. it's really, there's something fascinating there in terms of it's what it does to longevity. So going from that standpoint that I'm guessing that basically everything that we're going to strip out of people's diet is because it causes some variation of metabolic disease. We're making the base assumption that our North Star is longevity, health span, and call it performance. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. Okay. So um, if we're knowing that we're marching towards that, and sugar is the first thing that we strip out. Give it to me at a biological level. Why are we stripping sugar? What's it doing metabolically that's going to really ruin our ability to live for a long time in a healthy way and at high performance? Well, I think that the, the perception around sugar has sort of evolved, which is a, which is a very positive thing. I don't, I don't necessarily think that a little bit here and there is toxic in any sense. I don't think that sugar is the sole smoking gun for the obesity crisis. There's nothing inherently fattening about sugar. What? But it's, yeah, I mean, well... You mean I, the dose makes the poison, or...? I would say that the, the reason why sugar plays a role, added sugar plays a role in the, in the obesity epidemic, is because we don't tire of consuming it, and its addition to ultra-processed food products may contribute to the characteristic known as hyperpalatability. Mm-hmm. So it makes those foods prone to overconsumption. All right. Is hyperpalatability the problem or is there another mechanism that kicks in? So here's a theory. I forget exactly who put this forth, but basically, hey, fruit comes around in the fall. Mm-hmm. Fructose is designed to make you fat. It basically makes mitochondria less efficient on purpose. You start kicking off all of this... Um, Basically, you're wasting energy, raising your body temperature, uncoupling something, and it lets off heat. And you're doing all of that in conjunction with um, making your cells more insulin resistant so that you're basically storing more of the glucose in your bloodstream so it's not basically getting out of your body or even getting shoved into your fat cells because you want to keep your fat cells the way that they are. You even want to store some of the glucose in the bloodstream. And you're doing all of that trying to give your body the signal to store, store, store. And the reason that worked from a um, longevity standpoint is you were more likely to survive the winter. Yes. And so you've got sugar not only as a hyper palatability thing, but that it's also a signaling molecule telling your body winter is coming, store this shit up. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. So we have to, we have to kind of reconcile two truths here. So the first truth is that um, sugar, when sugar is present in the blood, when our blood sugar becomes elevated, it tells our pancreas basically to secrete the hormone insulin, which is the fat storage hormone. It's secreted basically, and it, and it's, and it serves two essential roles. One is to shuttle glucose into, you know, into the cells that, that need it, right? So your musculature, your skeletal muscle, your liver, these are the 
only places really that are able to store sugar in the body, and they store it for a good reason, because they use it as an energy source, right? When you're doing high-intensity anaerobic exercise, your muscles require stored glucose in the form of glycogen to perform that high-intensity work. The second um, function that insulin serves is it gets the sugar out of your blood, because when when your blood sugar is chronically elevated, that's toxic. It's actually glucotoxic. We know that chronically elevated blood sugar damages your blood vessels, it glycates your your red blood cells, right? That's something that you can measure with a test called the hemoglobin A1C. And insulin also turns your fat cells into a one-way valve. So it prevents lipolysis, which is the release of free fatty acids from your fat tissue, basically. And that does serve a purpose of helping to partition energy so that when, when sugar is available, our muscles are burning sugar as, a per, as opposed to burning fat. So it does block the burning of fat. However, if, you're in a, if your body is in a calorie deficit, it knows that you've got energy stored in your fat tissue. And so it's going to be able to circumvent the fact that insulin typically acts like a one-way valve on, on, your, on your fat cells. So when insulin is elevated, calories can flow into the fat, into the fat cell, but they can't flow out. Um, but again, if, you are, if your body is starving for energy, if you're in a calorie deficit, insulin is going to come down um, and those calories are going to be released anyway. So I think... Even if you have glucose in your bloodstream. Yeah. I mean, think, look at bodybuilders who eat massive amounts of carbohydrates while in a calorie deficit. They are still able to get shredded, right? So insulin, you need elevated insulin to store fat. But if you're in a calorie, if you're in an energy deficit, your body is going to be able to draw those calories regardless. Right. So now then let's look at other qualities of sugar. So I hear a lot of calories a calorie and hey, look at the guy, the Twinkie guy ends up losing fat. Get it. You just explained why. But if my cells are made of the things that I eat, am I really by doing a Twinkie diet or something like that, where I'm eating, you know, different oils, I'm eating trans fats, whatever, am I doing damage to my body at a cellular level that might not be detectable from just looking at me and seeing that I'm either in shape or not in shape. Yeah. So I don't want people to think that I'm promoting a a high sugar diet because again, sugar, it's got this hyper palatable quality. Also, thanks to really robust meta-analyses, we see that people, healthy individuals who are on high glycemic index diets, so diets that are very sugary, right? Diets that contain a lot of refined grain products are at, are at increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So we know that chronic elevations of blood sugar, even if you're, if you're young and healthy, is not good. It's not good to your metabolic system. Um, it glycates the, pro- the proteins in your body. And I'm, I have this hypothesis that uh, it's really lifetime exposure of glucose um, that over the long term is, is damaging. Um, and lifetime exposure basically implies the area under the curve of all of the you know, all of the glycemic excursions that your body has seen over the years, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's one reason to reduce glycemic variability. Also, we know that when we eat high sugar, when we ingest a high sugar bolus, it tends to um, drop our blood sugar because, again, insulin, it removes sugar from the blood. But the way that it works, the pancreas is not an, an instrument of precision. It functions more like a blunt tool. So for somebody that's eating a lot of sugar... It actually can send your sugar, your blood sugar below baseline, which can trigger anxiety in people who are prone to it. It can leave you feeling hangry, right? Consuming lots of sugar also, outside of the conversation regarding weight, which again is ultimately um, dictated by energy balance, 
consuming a high sugar bolus can also elevate your blood pressure, which we know is a risk factor for neurodegeneration. Um, we've seen that one high sugar bolus, about 75 grams uh, of sugar, can cause your systolic blood pressure to elevate for two hours post-ingestion, which is no bueno. We've also seen that a high sugar bolus can reduce testosterone by about 25%, which also persists for two hours. Yeah. Why? Any guesses why we'd have an evolutionary response to sugar that lowers our testosterone? That's a good question. I'm not, I'm not sure, although I would, you know, I think that when we see an, a, an onslaught of sugar in the blood, um, particularly from in these, in these clinical studies, they're using the, these sugary beverages oftentimes from what are called oral glucose tolerance tests. There's no, a hunter-gatherer would have never had access to that kind of rapidly digested sugar mm. deluge, right? Because we would have had fruit, and our fruit as hunter-gatherers would have been a fraction as sweet as they are today. But the notion of fruit juice or a sugary, high 75-gram glu- glucose beverage, for example, didn't exist. Um, so I think what it does is it sends our body into a stress state. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons why we see the elevation of blood pressure. And I would mm. also assume because stress can reduce testosterone, I, th- I would... I would guess that that's one of the mechanisms there as well. So That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we are seeing a decline in testosterone. Among, that's in general, though. In general. Yeah, are we, I've always assumed that's multifactorial. That's poor diet, that's adding on weight, that's uh, some of the societal things that are happening, that's uh, BPA. All of the above. Yeah, it's like a big... Well, all of the above, but as I mentioned, in that study where they saw a 25% reduction in testosterone, they used a 75-gram sugar bolus, right? Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, your average adult today consumes 77 grams of added sugar wow. every single day. So they're consuming that every day. So yeah, the added, the added sugar thing, I think, is uh, it's a problem. Now, again, if you have a big calorie budget, if you're a bodybuilder, if you're, um, you know, if you're, if you're burning an, uh, uh, an intense amount of calories on a daily basis, you do have a, a, a discretionary caloric budget. But for your average person, again, today, your average person is, is overweight, bordering on obesity, um, has some component of metabolic illness, glucose dysregulation. I would say that being, being a sleuth and being able to identify added sugar and then, and then cut that out, um, or at least minimize your, your consumption of it, I think you'd be doing your health major favors. So one more question along that. So let's say that I'm a bodybuilder, I'm yoked, huge muscle mass, and I am burning a ton of calories, I'm using my muscles a lot, and I live for the next 30 years on a high sugar diet by calorie, but I live in a caloric deficit, so I still look awesome, six-pack abs, I'm lean. Um, Do you think that I'm gonna be getting glycated tissues? Like, is there, am I paying a price internally even though I'm lean, yeah. if I were to do it for that long. I, I don't think anybody's done that study, but just curious no. what you think. So there's a, there's a debate actually raging right now um, in, the, in the sort of nutrition community as to whether or not um, chronic glucose spikes, which yield chronic insulin spikes, um, is at the etiology of insulin resistance, um, or whether it's purely uh, uh, a sort of energy toxicity scenario. Um, what we do see is that insulin resistance precedes chronically elevated insulin by sometimes 10 years. So it might be the case that those chronic spikes of insulin, um, wrought by chronically eating, you know, high sugar, regardless of where you are with your calories Mm. might actually, uh, cause somebody to develop insulin tolerance because cells 
develop a tolerance to chemicals that they are chronically exposed to, right? Yeah. And so if we're chronically exposing ourselves, our tissues, to high levels of insulin via our diets, regardless of where, you know, whether or not we're in a, in a calorie deficit or surplus, then they might, they might theoretically develop this, this sort of insulin um, resistance. And, I, and there is a debate about that. So, you know, um, my, get, my best guess would be because of these meta-analyses that are showing that high glycemic diets will, will predispose us to developing type 2 diabetes, I think it's best to really minimize glycemic variability, to know, um, you know the kinds of foods that are going to cause your, your blood sugar to go through the roof and then to, to minimize them and to use glucose-yielding um, starches as a, as a performance-enhancing tool, really. Um, and I, you know, I, I eat starches, I eat sweet potatoes and, and you know, the, the occasional grain... Um, but I am ultimately looking to make sure that I'm keeping my blood sugar stable because, mm-hmm. you know, whenever your blood sugar is elevated, you're, you are essentially glycating the proteins in your body. You're, you're damaging the proteins. You're, it's this, it's this sort of non-enzymatic reaction between sugar in your blood and protein. And it, it essentially drives decay and damage. Um, also when your body's in a low insulin state, you're allowing for gene pathways to, to activate that are associated with longevity, like FOXO3 um, cert one. So these are all very complicated sort of gene pathways, but, um, we know that chronically high levels of insulin are sort of like in opposition to those, to those pathways. All right. So we've got sugar. Yeah. We're not going to mess around with that. Uh, what else are we removing from our diet? Are we messing with dairy? Where are we at on that? Oh man, I love this question. So I've actually, my, my views on, on dairy have evolved, um, recently. Dairy is when you look at a glass of milk, it's a solution of water and fat, right? But the fat doesn't stay at the top, right? Right. Like let's have some sugar in there. Uh, there is lactose. Yeah. There is a natural source of, it is a natural source of sugar, but, um, it's not like oil and water, right? The, mm-hmm. the fat globules are suspended in the solution of, of essentially 95% water, which is what milk is, Right. The triglycerides in dairy are bound by a lipoprotein, essentially. Like, you know, you've heard of lipoproteins like your LDL cholesterol. Milk is comprised of lipoproteins called milk fat globule membrane. Mm. And these globules are comprised of proteins like uh, sphingomyelin, which is an important structural component of, of myelin, right? The myelin sheath in our brains. It's comprised of phosphatidylcholine. So I think that actually there's a lot of good stuff to be had in full fat dairy. And it also, these globules in milk affect the way our bodies respond to them. So dairy is unique among fat-containing foods in that it's got a higher proportion of saturated fat than any other food. So if you look at any natural fat-containing food... steak? Yeah, steak is actually about 50% um, monounsaturated fat, and you've got a fair amount of polyunsaturated fat in steak, particularly grain-fed steak. And then you actually have a, a relatively small proportion of saturated fat in steak, even though it gets like, people are like, oh my God, the saturated fat right. in steak. Um, dairy has a much higher proportion of saturated fat. And yet, paradoxically, we see that people who consume full fat dairy tend to have better cardiovascular health, better metabolic health. And I think it's due to the, the presence of this milk fat globule membrane. So my hypothesis is that it's really good for um, brain health if you can tolerate dairy. So a lot of people are, are lactose intolerant, but um, if you think about it, when a baby is born, especially a, a human baby, right? A human baby continues its development in the world. It's actually sometimes referred to as the fourth trimester of development. And um, breast milk is loaded with these globule with these globules, right? That must be there in at least in some 
way to support the development of the brain, which is undergoing rapid uh, organization and growth um, during the time in which a baby is, is feeding, right? So, um, so I've actually I've become a big fan of full-fat dairy. I think it's a great, uh, a great food. But I will offer the caveat, and this is another area with regard to dairy where my, my views have evolved, um, and, and, uh, and we could also even perhaps call this a food that, I've, that I would recommend avoiding for some. Um, and I know I'm going to get some hate from the paleo community for this, but uh, I think that butter is actually a food that's worth um, relegating to uh, like the indulgence category. And the reason for that is that when, first of all, butter is a man-made product. Dairy is made by nature, right? But butter is made by people. And um, when you churn cream, you disrupt the milk fat globule membrane. So this is one of the reasons why if you melt butter and you put it in, on a, in, a, in some water, it floats to the top. Mm. So that globule membrane has been disrupted. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see in clinical studies that when you feed people either cream or butter, they both start out as cream, right? I mean, cream is cream, obviously, but butter starts out as cream. Butter seems to have an adverse effect on blood lipids, whereas cream doesn't. So it's this—it's the presence of this like milk fat globule membrane that I think makes uh, the fat in full fat dairy very healthy. Um, but its disruption, I think, is what can lead to adverse uh, a sort of adverse lipid response um, in some to to butter. When you say an adverse lipid response, you're saying I eat the butter and it changes the composition or the amount of the lipids in my blood? Yes. So like it'll raise like LDL cholesterol. And actually the mechanism by which saturated fat raises LDL um, is, is quite interesting. It reduces availability of the LDL receptor on, on liver cells, on hepatocytes. So the way that your body works, it's, it's like a very elegant plumbing system. Your liver sends out these ApoB-containing particles, lipoproteins, right? Like milk fat globule membrane, but in your blood, Mm -hmm. LDL, VLDL, what have you. And the idea is before long, you want the liver to suck those particles back up, right? The liver will dismantle them, use the cholesterol to create bile acids, for example. Um, And it it relies on the availability of these, they're literally called the LDL receptors on the surface of the liver. And saturated fat actually causes an elevation of LDL cholesterol in the blood. In the blood. Because it's blocking the uptake. Yes, in the liver. Interesting. Yeah, and not all saturated fatty acids do this, I should add. So, I mean, there's, you know, nuance, I think. Um, we've heard for many years, and, and something that continues to be echoed by uh, particularly the vegan community is that saturated fat is bad. But sat- a, a fat is not a fat, just like a carb is not a carb and a protein is not a, a protein. Um, certain saturated fats do do this uh, more than others. And so it seems to be the case that butter um, reduces availability of this of the LDL receptor, whereas other full-fat dairy products don't, hmm. which, is, which is fascinating. So why then has dairy been on everybody's hit list in terms of creating problems? Is it just that so many people are lactose intolerant, or is there some other element to dairy that creates other problems? You know, that's a really great question. I think it has to do with the fact, I mean, many people are lactose intolerant. I think there's a big push now towards plant-based diets. There's a lot of money behind it, right? A push towards the consumption of fake meat products, right? Which, mm-hmm. which I like to call the equivalent of human pet food. You know, it's like ultra processed junk. Um, but also, and I, I, I drink this stuff sometimes, but like almond milk and macadamia nut milk, like all these, all these like plant-based milks, there's a lot of money going into them. So there's this big push away from dairy milk. Um, 
And also, admittedly, like in the, in the wellness community, dairy has been demonized for some time. People will say that it's inflammatory. Um, meta-analyses actually show that, that for most people, dairy is actually not inflammatory. Hmm. Was that the impetus for pushing deeper into the topic? Yeah, to be honest, I mean, you know, what it takes today to live a healthy, a long and healthy life, um, it's so multifaceted. Uh, and nutrition is definitely, it plays a major, a major role in that regard, but it's just one part of the puzzle. And so whereas Genius Foods, my first book, I consider to be sort of the ultimate nutritional care manual for the human brain. Um, having a brain that functions as well as it ought to requires a lot more than just healthy eating today, unfortunately. Mm. I mean, I wish it was as easy as eating, you know, a handful of blueberries and wild salmon and, uh, you know, some nuts here and there, but actually you know, the modern world is sort of like the hunger games for, for the human brain. And I know you love the movie references and, uh, we're just like, we're being attacked from every which way from, you know, the, the industrial chemicals, which we are confronted with on a daily basis, many of which we've, we've been exposed to for the entirety of our lives to the fact that's, you know, leisure time, physical activity is at an all time low to the fact that our food supply has become saturated with ultra processed foods to the fact that our circadian clocks are completely out of whack. So the genius life, I really explore all of the facets of what it takes to live uh, healthy. I include nutrition and diet as well. Um, but it's really packed with sort of the, the little changes that you can make in your day to day life that are going to have big wins in terms of your health. Mm. When you were doing the research, what was something that really surprised you? Well, I think it was kind of, uh, you know, it, it was scary the degree to which, um, the odds are stacked against the average human. And, and that was very eye opening. but it was also simultaneously what stacks the odds against us. Well, just the fact that you know, whether it's access to healthy food or air pollution or, you know, the industrial chemicals that we use to clean or even create our domiciles, mm. you know, our, our homes, um, we're just, we're inundated with, with exposures that are not doing our biology any favors. Um, so those are the, that's what I mean. I mean, today, uh, it's, it's frightening when you look around, you see people that are, you know, struggling with overweight, with being obese. Um, 66% of the population is either overweight or obese. Half of the population is either pre-diabetic or has type 2 diabetes, which we know both of those conditions is actually a late marker for chronically elevated insulin or hyperinsulinemia, mm. um, which can go on for years, if not decades, before your blood sugar actually starts to inch up, you know, to a degree that a doctor would measure it. Um, so, you know, people are not well, um, if you live to the age of 85, you have a one in two chance of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Jeez. Um, certain cancers are increasing in their frequency in the 1960s. A woman's lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, uh, was one in 20 today. It's about one in eight. So there's obviously been a mutation in our environments. Our genes haven't changed all that much. And yet the default state for any organism is health. But you look around and people are not healthy. People are not feeling well. When you look in the mirror, I mean, I want your listeners to kind of introspect for a minute and ask whether or not you feel healthy, whether or not you feel virile and vital and well. And I wrote this book and I became obsessed with, with this topic and really communicating this message to any, anybody who will listen ultimately because my mom was so sick. Mm. And I feel in many ways that she was the canary in the coal mine for the modern way of life. Reading the book, I didn't realize that she died of cancer. So yeah. I knew obviously from your last book, from talking to you that she had dementia early, which is f***ing terrifying. Uh, but then to hear that she got cancer on top of that is pretty gnarly. Um, 
if you like going through that process, like what was that like as you're researching the book and you're obviously getting clues as to what is um, bombarding her? Um, how do you process through that? How do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, all I have are hypotheses, so I'll never claim to know what was the cause of either my mom's dementia, which she developed at a very young age, at the age of 58, uh, or the fact that over Labor Day of 2018, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, ironically, in both instances, with both diagnoses, what I experienced in every doctor's office that I you know, went to with my mom was diagnose and adios. Mm. Uh, in, in both scenarios, the treatment options that were afforded to my mom were, were very limited. Um, with dementia, you know, I mean, anybody with a loved one with dementia will tell you that you get prescribed these biochemical band-aids and they do very little in terms of disease management. They certainly have no disease modifying effect. Um, my mom was on you know, all of the drugs that were, were available to her for, her for her memory function. And then my mom happened to have a particularly gnarly form of cancer. She developed pancreatic cancer. And we realized this when over Labor Day, she turned yellow, which is, um, you know, if you turn, you can turn yellow. There's, there's probably two major reasons why a person would turn yellow. One is if you're eating too much beta carotene uh, and then your skin turns yellow, but not the, eyes, the, the whites of your eyes. Mm. Then there's another condition called jaundice, which is when your skin and your eyes turn yellow. And that's because bilirubin, which is the pigment that um, is released into your digestive tract, which gives stool its color, that, that dark yellow, almost brownish color, isn't able to flush out and then backs up. It, gets, it seeps into your skin. It seeps into the whites of your eyes. And that can be caused by, generally speaking, one of two conditions. One, a gallstone. Um, and that's what we were all praying that my mom had. But when they did the MRI of my mom's abdomen, what it turns out she actually had was a tumor on her pancreas that was pressing into her bile duct. And pancreatic cancer, I believe 90-something percent of the time is diagnosed uh, when it's already in an advanced stage. Mm. And that was certainly true for my mom. When it was diagnosed for my mom, she was already in stage four, which means that the cancer had already spread. They found lesions on her liver and you know, my mom's quality of life at that point was already so degraded due to the dementia and the, and the Parkinsonian symptoms that she also had, the movement symptoms, mm. the stiffness. But still, I thought that I was going to have my mom, you know, you never, you never think to yourself that your, that your mom is not going to be here, um, you know, in, in any way that's, you know, that, that transmits the urgency of a terminal illness. And when my mom was diagnosed over Labor Day, because it was already in stage four, and because my mom was already so ill with her dementia, there was nothing that they could offer her. And so they gave us a prognosis of three to six months. Um, immediately she went into hospice care. Was she able and, to like grasp what was happening? Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. She, the, cog, the, the cognition was really, you know, constrained, um, at that stage, she, there were a few windows of lucidity. I, I remember clear as day, you know, when they, when they did the surgery to unblock the bile duct, they put a stent in mm -hmm. so that the bilirubin can then go into the, you know, can, can properly drain into the GI tract. After that, before that surgery, she could barely speak. Um, there was, there was basically no communication and, you know, her cognition really was, um, was affected to a significant degree. The other thing is that bile 
is how we, and we could talk about this later in the episode, is how one of the major routes of excretion of toxins. So if you have dementia and then you have this bilirubin back up into the blood, it's basically, it's, it's hypertoxic to the brain. And so when they stented that bile duct and suddenly, you know, her color began to return to normal, there was like a day or two where she seemed almost normal. It was shocking. Um, But ironically, we, we didn't tell her about the diagnosis um, in the, you know, in that, in those immediate um, hours following the, following the diagnosis because we wanted to be sure that it was what it was. Mm. And they, when they do a, a diagnosis with MRI, it's not, um, it's not certain until they, they do a biopsy. Mm. In my mom's case, they kind of, they thought that it was, you know, that the, that, that it was pretty clear, but we were just so sensitive to, to my mom and the mood and life had just become so difficult for her and all of us that we wanted to be sure that it was what it was. And so we had to wait for the biopsy. Um, you know, they took cells when they performed that, that stenting procedure and lo and behold, you know, a a week or two later, they confirmed that it was cancer. And, um, that's when we told my mom. And when we told my mom, it was heartbreaking. I don't think that she, she, she understood what she had, but it didn't hit her the way that it would hit you or I. Um, she made a couple of comments, you know, that were just truly heartbreaking. I mean, how do you tell your, you know, your mom that, that she's dying? Like that's the most difficult conversation that I think any human being can possibly have or, or, or any loved one for that matter. I mean, it's just inconceivable. Like the whole, the whole thing to me to this day is still unbelievable. I can't, I can't believe it. It, it feels like a nightmare. It doesn't mm. feel like real life. Um, but we, uh, yeah, we, we told her and her cognition, you know, started to begin a slow and gradual decline again. Um, she made a comment once that just, you know, it, I'll never forget it. She, it was a testament to her, you know, to how much she loved me and my brothers. I have two younger brothers. Um, but it's also, and, and how much she loved us, but it just so clearly shows you how evil dementia can be. She said something, you know, after the, after the, after we told her about the diagnosis, she started crying and she, she said, what am I going to do without you guys? As if we were going somewhere, you know, not, it, it was clear that it wasn't clicking or, or that something was being lost in translation mm. because, you know, it, it, it sounded like we were going somewhere. But in reality, you know, she was going somewhere. And I was thinking in the back of my head, what are you going to do without us? What the F are we going to do without you? Mm. And, um, and yeah, it was, I mean, that was, those were the wor- worst three months of my entire life. I mean, I can't even, it was just awful. It was wrought with pain and, you know, the, the, the palliative care is just, you know, being there for somebody in that condition and having to, to drop, you know, you know, take a dropper of, of morphine and, and administer it to it. It's just like, it's, it's awful. I don't think human beings should have to deal with that. I mean, I, you know, it made me intre- you know, more interested in, um, physician assisted suicide and things like that, because not that, not that, not that we would have pulled that trigger, but the end, the very end, it was just, it was terrible. It was awful. Dude, 
So my cousin died of cancer, really aggressive cancer. He was super f-ing, like mid twenties. And I went to see him a couple days before he died. And I thought the same thing. I'm sitting there in the hospital and I, I was impressed because his mentality was, I will never give up, not to the bitter end. And I respect that dude. I respect that. That's my mindset, like all the way, get across the finish line, do whatever the takes. And I'm watching him though, literally struggle for every single breath of air. Mm. And I'm just asking like, where is this going? And at what point do you say, actually what I want is peace. I want to rest. And I get it. Like when there's any element of maybe, maybe if I just fight hard enough, I can pull out of this. And like you said, I don't know Would I pull the trigger. I I really think in my own case, I would. And when I look at, and I don't know um, enough about Robin Williams case to know how deep he was into the disease and all that. But like, I kind of get it, man. Like there, there's just no joy to be had at the end for anybody. Mm -hmm. And at some point to me, like, I'm not a, I'm not a person who thinks that, um, if all that's left is extreme suffering, that the life still makes sense. I think that's a choice the person should get to make for themselves hundred percent. Like I would never make that decision for somebody else, but me, man, for my own sake, if I had been in his position watching it, I'd be like, yeah, this, this is a no brainer. Like I want to kiss everybody goodbye. I want to have one last laugh and, and thank you, but good night. Like that, that is just the only thing that makes sense to me having witnessed that now going through it. Maybe I'll feel different. Maybe like that sense of fighting is the right answer, but whoa, like from the outside, it looked super, super gnarly. It's super gnarly. I mean, there are things you see that, that you just change you, you know? I mean, the fact that I, that I'm not more traumatized from it uh, is, is almost a shock because it's just, you witness things that are so barbaric, so inhuman. Um, I mean, to, I was there with my mom until, until the end to, to witness somebody dying and not just somebody, but the person who you love more than anybody, any human being on earth, um, fade away. It's just, uh, it's gutting to the nth degree. There's really, there's really no words. And you know, the hospice nurses that worked with my mom, they were angels. They were amazing. But, um, it, it reaffirmed to me the value of taking care of yourself while you can, you know, in the words of John F. Kennedy, the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining, because when you're sick, it's just, it's a lot harder to undo years of, of, you know, damage Mm. that oftentimes we do to ourselves. I mean, not all the damage is, is something that we have agency over. As I mentioned, you know, the modern world, we're, we're flush up against myriad industrial chemicals that are probably not helping the, the cause, but you really have to do what you can while you're young, you're young and healthy um, to avert these kinds of conditions. And it's been just this lifelong journey of trying to unravel what it was about my mom's life, my mom's circumstances that led to her becoming so ill. Was she just a genetic fluke that she was so ill for so long? I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I, you know, and I hope not because that would, that wouldn't bode well, very well for my health, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think we really ought to do what we can. And so that's why I've dedicated myself to learning and and communicating as best as I can these principles. Yeah. And I want to hear how you sort of rebound from that. And if, if you're doubling down in the work and that's a way out, because I had a, my roommate, former roommate from college, he was on a path 
it was really interesting to see where he was going to go producing film, like the whole nine. And then his mom got a brain tumor hmm. and in the removal of the brain tumor, she basically developed dementia like symptoms and was type two diabetic and watching him go through that. It, it changed him so fundamentally and he, he, he 180 on his life, just changed everything up, moved, took a totally different path. And he, when he was going through it, like he had this daily heartbreak. So she's got dementia, so she doesn't remember anything, but she's type two diabetic. So she, he has to be on her about what she's eating. And he was like, dude, you, you can't imagine what it's like every day to have to retell my mom that she's a type two diabetic and that she can't have the things that she wants because she keeps coming and asking for a glass of orange juice or whatever. And he's like, every day I have to tell her again that she can't have it. And it was like, you know, you just get to the point where you're asking that same fundamental question. At what point is her quality of life so low that none of this makes sense anymore? And to watch him go through that, like you said, to see the person you love most in the world fading away, like it's gnarly. And so I, I lost touch with him at that point. He, he just went off the radar. This is all pre-social media. Um, so I'm curious, like as you're going through that, how do you rebuild? Like what is your coping mechanism been? It's been, I'm so great. You know, I mean, people love to bash on social media, but the fact that I have, that I've been so transparent and open about my motivations and, um, my story with my followers, the fact that, that they were there to, to send feedback and love and this, you know, this outpouring of love. Um, I really felt it, um, when, when I was going through that and my mom passed away, I have channeled a lot of the, the angst about losing my mom into my work. I'm very lucky that I get to do that, that I get to write about it, that I get to um, be, that I get to feel creatively expressed. In many ways, although my work is about health and science and, and nutrition and all that stuff, I also feel very much like an artist. And I think what artists are is that they, you know, what they do is they transmute pain. They take pain and they turn it into something meaningful, um, you know, and I've done that pretty much my whole life. I've been you know, when I went through heartbreak, uh, in, in, I think it was around 2008, I, uh, it inspired me to become a musician because I found that music was a great way to, to communicate the pain that I was feeling in, in regards to my heart being broken. Mm. When my mom started going through this, the best way that I, that I knew to, to deal with it in a way that made me feel like this wasn't all going to be in vain was to use it to help and inspire other people to live healthier and to learn more about their bodies, about their biology. And my intention really has never been to, to be called an expert, a health expert or anything like that. It was really to be, um, an example for people because I don't believe that you need to be a PhD or an MD or a registered dietitian uh, to understand how your body works and how you interact, you know, how your food interacts with your biology um, and how light interacts with your biology and how exercise and sleep and, you know, all these things that are so crucial when it comes to living well. I think uh, it's a disservice to humanity, humanity to expect these um these, these incredible knowledge bases that we have thanks to science to be siloed off into their respective, um, you know, academic fields. And so my own curiosity, my own thirst for knowledge about these topics, especially in the wake of my mom's sickness and ultimately her passing, um, it's, I've just, I've, I've 
been for the past, you know, better part of, of a decade insatiable about trying to understand why this would have happened to her mm-hmm. and, and what I could do to prevent it from happening to myself. So that's been a really great outlet. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of like an intellectual punching bag, you know, cause science is so complex. It's so nuanced and it's so dense and, and there's so much to learn, you know, and there's just like, there's no way that you're going to be able to understand everything, but trying to, trying to wrap your head mm-hmm. around the conceptual vastness of, of our biology and, 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 and health as a whole. It's a, it's a project, um, that, you know, that it just, it doesn't end. And so it's been to be able to pour myself into that and to be able to do it now professionally, um, for a living, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to, to people who have supported my work and, um, and yeah, and I only hope that it provides, you know, inspiration, uh, for others. It's interesting that you call yourself an artist because reading the book, which is dense with very useful scientific information. Um, there were parts in the book where you talk about things like rapamycin that I've heard other people talk about, but you talk about in a way that was accessible and made it easier for me to sort of grasp and understand and mTOR and all that stuff, which is super fascinating, but, um, you make it accessible. And there was a part in the book where I felt like the human come through into the, the whole equation where you were talking about diet and its impact and all that. But you said, you know, at the end when my mom, um, was really struggling, man, my trips were to the bakery and getting her things that she loved. And I thought, that's so interesting. Um, I'd be curious to hear like in that, like the, the book I want you now to write is the, like how you deal with this stuff. Cause I feel like you dealt with that artfully, your ability to speak on it is incredible. The fact that you invited your followers in on that journey and all that stuff. Uh, it was really, really cool. So why, because that is exactly what I would do and I would feel a little guilty about it, but it's like, if I knew the end was nigh for someone that I cared about and they wanted the exact thing that I thought was problematic, I'd still yeah. give it to them. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a really important question to ask. And it's another area where I've just learned so much, you know, about, about health communication and diet because of what I went through with my mom. So you know, what you're referencing is the fact that, and I think a lot of people in the health space and especially in the keto community, whenever the term cancer comes up, people are, you know, can be very zealous about, uh, you know, putting people on this ketogenic diet, which is supposed to starve the cancer cell. And the reality is it's not that easy. Like cancer cells are notorious for mutating and using alternate energy, energy substrates when they have to. Um, and you know, if, if you were in an earlier stage of cancer, maybe that would be something that would, that could be potentially available to you. You know, Dr. Walter Longo at USC is doing, you know, amazing work on, on the role of fasting and how fasting mm-hmm. can potentially sensitize a patient, uh, a, a tumor cell or, or, or a tumor rather to, um, chemotherapy while protecting the patient. So there's all these amazing things going on in the world of nutrition, um, and, 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 and ketogenesis as it relates to cancer and all that stuff. But when you have somebody who's in a later stage of cancer, they're battling against something called cachexia, which is extreme muscle wasting. Mm. Um, and so for that patient, you really want to, that patient, what they need most is just calories and when a patient has no appetite, well, how are you going to get them to eat unless it's a really delicious food? A food Is that, that they, you were doing it? Because when yeah. I read that, I actually read it totally differently. So I assumed it was, man, she just, I can bring a little joy into her world. Because look, obviously, depending on yeah. where we're at in the journey, the answer is very different. So if it's, you know, somebody's just being diagnosed and there's a shot that they can get out of this, like, 
I'd have them in the gym, eating perfectly, doing the fasting, like the whole rigmarole. Yeah. But once we're like, yo, this doesn't, there's no reversing this. Like we know we're at the end. Then it's like, hey, bring on what little joys you can. Yeah. And that's what I thought you meant in the book when you said that. But you were just trying to battle cachexia? Well, it was both to bring her joy. It was that. I went. I would go to my mom's favorite um, pastry shop in New York, which is called Vinieros on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, and I would buy her cannolis and strawberry shortcake because I know that those were my mom's favorite things to eat. And I knew that there was no dietary intervention in the world that was going to help my mom at that point. And for somebody who has no appetite, cancer patients don't have an appetite. They can mm-hmm. barely you know, eat. Uh, you really want to get them the foods that are going to just provide calories, energy, just so that they don't completely waste away. Um, I had a, around that time, I, I learned kind of the hard way or not the hard way, but I, you know, a lot of people love to hate on Ensure, which is uh, this like sugar slurry of, you know, unhealthy oils and whatever. But it's, you know, Ensure is is marketed on the one hand probably to older adults, you know, as a protein supplement. And for that purpose, I think that that's, you know, not a good product. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it for that. But on the other hand, if it's a product that's engineered to be as palatable as possible while providing, you know, your basic level of, of multivitamin support, um, then maybe that's going to be a better, better option than trying to cram a protein shake down a cancer patient's throat. That's not going to be as palatable. And so I began buying interesting, man. It's super interesting. I would buy my mom, for example, protein shakes because I was like, all right, we got to fight cachexia. We got to keep the protein intake high because we know that that's going to you know, help maintain muscle, which we know, you know, eating higher amounts of, you need, first of all, protein's essential, but, and my mom was barely getting any. So I was, you know, on the one hand, I wanted her to have a higher protein, um, option, but those kinds of shakes, especially when they're low carb, they're sweetened with artificial sweeteners that are just not as palatable as sugar, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And though I would never drink uh, an insure shake and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, recommend its consumption to anybody who was healthy. Uh, it actually, it's something that my mom enjoyed more and would drink more of than the protein shake that I tried to get her to drink. Right. And so that's kind of a, that's a, that's a mind f- really, because at the end of the day, you, you're, you're trying to basically put calories into a person's mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're withering away at an unforced, you know, at a rate that you just can't conceive of, um, because the cancer is just so hungry and so, yeah, so when I would go to the pastry shop, you know, I wasn't about to try to put my mom on a ketogenic diet. You're just, you're, you're past that point. Mm. Um, you've, you've, you've reached the escape velocity at which point you really just need to think about survival. You're not thinking about fighting the cancer. You're just trying to like buy days, you know, weeks if you're lucky, but really days. Are there places in America where assisted suicide is legal? I believe in Oregon, Oregon is the one state that I know of. Yeah, that's interesting. That's one of those things, man. I'm sure there are people that understand sort of the way religion works its way through America and law that get why it's illegal. But I don't get it. Like, I legitimately do not understand how like people are weird about that. If somebody if somebody certainly of sound mind decides that's what they want to do, then I, I don't get how that's illegal. I'm not going to say that I would have even brought that up to my mom. I'm, you know, I don't know if she would have been into it. Uh, you know, it's even just, just abstracting it from your mom. Like just, that just seems to me like a self-evident thing that you should be able to do that if that's what you want to do. Yeah. First of all, you're not going to stop people. If they want to do it, they're going to do it. And then second, to make them do like horrific, stupid shit, 
Um, I get it, man. I wouldn't want people to do it. I certainly wouldn't want people to do it because it's a mood disorder. But, oh, man, if you have a terminal illness. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. Even if it was just a few hours earlier, but then, you know, the the all of the hours that I had with my mom, you know, I mean, I've spent many, many, many hours thinking to myself since my mom's passing how much I would have appreciated even another second or two with my mom. So, you know, I'm not going to say that that's a, that's an easy decision to make. And actually, if you think about it in a way, when you start giving higher doses of morphine, I mean, that is in a way physician assisted suicide because morphine suppresses your respiratory system. And so the more pain there is, the more morphine you start getting. I mean, there's some suggestion in the literature that, uh, morphine actually accelerates, um, you know, a person's, a person's demise. Mm. It's just a, it's a horrible drug, but it's a, it's a, one of the best, if not the best, or it's one of the best pain relievers that we have. There are stronger drugs, but, uh, so yeah, it's just, it's dehumanizing and it's, and it's crazy. And I'm so grateful that my mom was able to be in her own bed, um, when it, when it happened and that, you know, we had the hospice nurses that we had and that me and my brothers were there for her but it was terrible. So my, any, and I'm not alone. So many people are struggling with illness, cancer related deaths, Alzheimer's dementia. And so my heart goes out to them. It's just a, it's a terrible thing. And, and, you know, I think we ought to support scientific research. We have to, uh, cause we're still a long way away from knowing what causes cancer in each, you know, each cancer type alone, but then in each individual patient, it's probably a different slew of, of insults that lead to the, the, you know, the creation and, and, you know, growth of, of tumors. And so if you want to finally take control of your health and stop struggling with a lack of focus, feeling sluggish and just not being your best, then you need to fulfill all the nutritional needs your body has every single day. You can do that easily and simply with AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been supporting AG1 for many years. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. And you guys know me, I do not normally eat supplements. AG1 is basically it. It is a supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And what I like is that they're basically grounding up real vegetables. It is about as close to eating the real thing as you're going to get. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients in every serving to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Click the link in the show notes or just go to drinkag1.com slash impact. That's drinkag1, the number, dot com slash impact. Check it out. This is a little embarrassing, but I'm just going to admit it because I think you can relate. I used to feel bloated and lethargic and uncomfortable after every meal that I ate. And at the time, guys, I just dismissed it as, oh, this is just me. It's a normal part of my life. 
because that was before I knew anything about gut health and the microbiome imbalance. I mean, did you know an imbalance in your gut microbiome can trigger immune responses inside your body that can cause issues with your weight, skin, energy levels, sleep, quality, and even your mental health? Yes, let me repeat it, guys. Your gut microbiome can trigger an immune response that can affect your weight, your skin, your energy levels, your sleep quality, and your mental health. My gut issues were so damn miserable. And all the while, I was thinking there was nothing that I could do about it until I actually started to understand the microbiome and how the body reacts to the things that we eat. And the results were freaking life-changing. Now, this was over seven years ago. And so understanding the microbiome now compared to then is literally a night and day. And now today's technology is accessible more than ever. At-home testing has even become an option thanks to this episode's sponsor, Viome. Viome is an at-home testing company, guys, that analyzes the unique bacteria in your gut using cutting-edge technology. And based on your results, they provide personalized recommendations to improve your gut health, including pre- and probiotic supplements literally formulated to support and improve your microbiome. This is so freaking cool, guys. Viome will tell you what foods are good and bad for your biome. And not only that, they'll tell you why. So go to tryviome.com slash Lisa and use code Lisa to get 20% off your first three months and start to take control of your health right freaking now. Again, guys, that's tryviome.com slash Lisa. Now back to the episode. 